live as it's recorded at the Trapdoor Chicken Coop in Sammysville, Pennsylvania. It's the We Talk Games Monthly Video Game Magazine. And pinball. Oh my back, holy cripes. We Talk Games. Today's special guest, the master of the flow, Steve Ritchie. And author, activist, video game designer, pinball designer, pinball master, pinball wizard. Author of 1977's Pinball! Exclamation point. And greatest mustache in video game history, Roger Sharp, will be on the show. I'm Stinky the Game Master, along with the We Talk Games Submarine Orchestra. And now, here's Wiggly. Thank you, Stinky, and welcome to We Talk Games, episode 13, the beginning of our second year of volume two of We Talk Games. And we went out with a bang. I think we're coming back in with a bang, and a bell, and a buzzer, a bumper, and hopefully a center post to stop the drain down the middle. This show will also mark the 3.5th year of We Talk Games. And as Stink mentioned, this will be pinball-centric. We will have a special We Talk Games Council of Video Game Millionaires where we'll talk about pinball, mechanicals, and a condensed retrospective of video game pinball. One of my favorite genres! I am your host, Wiggly, in the booth, Keith LaPosh. Yo. To my left, the lovely Titi Schmootkins. Hello, I am Titi Schmootkins, and my internal temperature gauge is malfunctioning. And sitting down at the end of the trapdoor chicken coop bar and karaoke plaza, Stinky the Game Master, Stinky. Oh my back! Holy cripes! Yeah, we did just get done with a five-hour shoveling marathon. Our driveway is quite long here, and the whole crew, well, everyone except Keith LaPosh was out there uh, shoveling. I'm not saying anything, Keith. It's just, you know, unusual. Healthy guy like you. But even Stinky was out there. In fact, well, I couldn't see him most of the time. He's only five foot tall, and uh, most of the time he was buried beneath the five-foot snowdrifts. and saw his little red hat sticking out. Hey! Being five feet has its advantages. Remember that when I used to be Ray Mysterio's body double? I I did not know that. I learned something new every month. Now, you would think that T.T. Schmootkins, a robot, would be great. Like, you just go outside, you sit in a lawn chair, and watch the robot do all the shoveling work. However, that's not the case. I'm just not good with the ice. Well, it's the metal feet. And truth be told, both T.T. and I need some boots. We... Wait, I don't have any boots. I'm just wearing my sneakers, and they're made out of cloth. So, I have a three-sneaker rotisserie oven where I just uh, keep two pairs baking in there while I wet the others. But let's not talk. Let's get going with the show, because we this show is so stacked. And not only is it so stacked, but we have some really, really special We Talk Games news that I'm very, very proud of. First of all, Stinky, do you have that thing I asked for you to get? Yeah, I got it right here. You folded it? I was carrying this around for a while. Oh, my gosh. Well, well, shortly in the We Talk Games Pro Gear store, just go to wetalkgames.com, click on Pro Gear, and soon you will be able to purchase the We Talk Games Video Power poster from the 1980s. Now, how am I supposed to get this printed? It's kind of like... That adds character. Well, it features all your favorite We Talk Games characters and their nemesis. Nemesis is... Uh, but we're pretty excited about it. The lovely Morgan drew this up back in the 1980s, and Stinky carried around in his pocket since then. Great. And hopefully we'll have that up available for you soon. And over the next few months, you might also notice some changes going on at the We Talk Games website. More about that as it develops. 
We also have a winner of our We Talk Games Stacked T-Shirt Contest, the Stinkies Contest of the Month from a few months ago. The winner has been contacted. The check has been cut, but more about that next episode. But some very, very special news out of Ottumwa, Iowa. The We Talk Games monthly video game podcast is proud to announce that we have been cordially invited to the inaugural ceremonies at the International Video Game Hall of Fame and Museum. Now, this was only offered to a very limited group of podcasters and media types, so to have our show first picked for this invitation and the fact that we talk about video games and we love video games and we're passionate about video games, it's really a touching recognition. So... I'm going, Kyle's going, TT, Stinky, everybody. I can't make it in August. Why not? That's when the, you know what, comes out of the, you know where. Oh, right, right. Still, still going with that, huh, TT? Okay, I hey, gotcha. All right, let's see. The poster, Atumwa in August, on our way, got that. Website, check. I think I remembered everything. We're going to get Steve Ritchie on here very, very shortly. I just want to start a small retro view. In fact, let's not start. Let's go! Don't you think I sound like a robot? This must be the retro review part. Because if it's from the 80s, you must sing like robot. I love you. All right. After a hard day of shoveling, you like to settle on down with some downloadable video games at home. Let us start with the Wii, the Virtual Console. Out in the world of NES Virtual Console emulation, we have Princess... Oh, boy! Kyle is so happy. Princess Tomato in the Salad Kingdom from Hudson. Now you, too, can fight the farmies in this text-based graphical adventure game and find out why Kyle loves this title. Also, for the Super Nintendo, we got Ghoul Patrol. If you want something out of the Slayer of Pinball's uh, court there, the old LucasArts Ghoul Patrol. For the Master System, Alex Kidd and Shinobi World, it's great. Let's get all the Alex Kids. And for the Genesis, Sonic and Knuckles came out. But you cannot cram the ROMs of the previous Sonic games on top of this ROM. Some exciting titles on the WiiWare side of the house for classic game lovers. A new Phoenix Wright, Justice for All episode came out. I know that's real classic, going back all of about four years. Now, there's also some WiiWare titles that you might think sound cool, but uh, might actually not be that great. And we don't usually like to take up a lot of time with games that we're not crazy about, but we do like to draw attention to games that sound cool, sound like they have a lot of potential, but may leave you open to a letdown. Ghost Slayer. Ghost Slayer. Wii Motion Plus. Single-player, cross-swords-like. You're fighting samurai ghosts from hell. It's only six bucks might think that this is a good one, but I recommend that you watch a video of this first before you dive in. might be a little on the slow side and the repetitive side. I usually like to make the analogy that Wii games are the same version of the game that's released for the PSP. Well, now Wii owners that are devoid of an iPod or an iPhone will no longer have iPod Envy. Because Warman Tactics, for $8 from an $0.80 iPod game, you can now completely enjoy in all its iPod processing power glory on your Wii. They change nothing, including the on-screen interfaces that you're usually supposed to touch with your finger. It's all still there. So look for more iPod games coming to a Wii near you. There are also a whole bunch of other WiiWare titles like 5 and one Solitaire and a bunch more, but two games really stuck out. Number one, Sunsoft Blaster Master Overdrive for $10 came out. 
And I don't think there really is a title more appropriate than Blaster Master Overdrive. It is Blaster Master. Sophia's there. You can get in and out of your tank. But now it's really on overdrive. The animation is wonderful. It's CG-rendered characters pushed into pixels. That's what it looks like to me. You can get in and out of Sophia. You can do all the overhead types of levels. You fight the bosses, just like in the original Blaster Master. But now with some special features thrown in, some overdrive mode, overdrive graphic. Everything has been overdriven. So if you're a fan of the original, definitely check it out. Also, I'm so happy to see more Japanese wacky goofiness coming out to the American Wii console. And for only $5, Konami, you get a big thumbs up. Tomonosana! It's great! Pitfall meets Rub Rabbits meets Breakdancing with a Rhythm Game Extra Points, Fire Farting Giraffes, mashed together with Out of This World, China Warrior, and all with one button, Wii Wii Action. I think that's how you pronounce A-I in Japanese as E. And this Wii Wii action is something that is touted by Konami. It's, it's right on the splash screen. One button, Wii Wii action. And your little character that runs from the left to the right in a very out-of-worldly fashion will encounter good and bad obstacles. And it's up to you to get your timing right to when to press the A button for him to either avoid the obstacle, make peace with it, float around like a flying monk, do a cool breakdance move or a capoeira. And all the backgrounds and happenings are just completely insane, and I love it. So please keep more of that coming for me. Tomina Sanner! Over at the PlayStation Store, Fret Nice! You can demo this. $14.99, Fret Nice. Did you ever want to play an action platform game? Except instead of using a regular controller, which is designed to do action platform games, you want to use your rock a band or guitar hero guitar as a controller to jump and move well now you can wish no longer friends fret nice is here uh demo this it's available for the ps3 and also for the xbox 360 and it's kind of cool but using it with the guitar controller i not only felt stupid but i couldn't really control it (laughs) also in the playstation store some updates of games that you might be familiar with 1985's thexter the transforming robot Starscream, Robotech, Jet Fighter, Robot, Maze type of action platformer, shooter, <laughs> has been updated to Thexter Neo. Play the demo. It's only a $9.99 game, but it sort of feels a little old. The interesting point of this shooter is that you can transform between a fighter jet and a robot. Konami's Assault Heroes also came out with a little bit of a facelift. This looks great. Now, this is in the style of an Akari Warriors. And speaking of... Blaster Master, it actually has a little bit of that as well, because you can get in and out of your vehicle. It's sort of like Akari Warriors in an assault vehicle. But the graphics look great, and at $9.99, I think this is a really good buy for fans of that style of shooter. Since this is a pinball-centric episode, I think I just have to mention and warn, PS1, some PS1 downloadable titles on your PS3, Extreme Pinball came out. Now, it's only $5.99, and it's from Electronic Arts, so you might think, hey, I want to see this. Extreme Pinball! You will take pinball to the extreme with this. Extremely long loading times, extremely poor graphics, and extremely choppy gameplay. So buyer beware on Extreme Pinball. Over on the 360, the Xbox Live Arcade Block Party, the Game Room, still teasing us. This is going to make it so we never, ever, ever, ever have to leave our couch. And yet think that we're somehow socially interacting with people because we're going to be able to hang out in a virtual arcade 
where we can't put our virtual cigarettes on top of the machine and burn it and then spill our sodas on the Tempest as well. But they're still teasing us, and I can't wait for that to be implemented. What game should you be downloading for the demo? I would take a look at Lazy Raiders. It's only $10. This is similar to on-the-ball or other move-the-course type of maze games, but with a lot more fun, a lot more innovation thrown in, and it's actually character-based. Now, you can either use Professor Digabones, I think that's what his name is, Professor Digabone, who's supposedly the laziest anthropologist ever. So he's so lazy, you have to move the whole cave that he's spelunking around him to get him to do anything. Or you can even use your little avatar who appears in a pith helmet and things like this. So check out Lazy Raiders. It's kind of fun. As I mentioned, Fret Nice came out for the 360 as well. Criss Cross from Konami. Now don't get excited. It's not Criss Cross Make My Video. This is K-R-I-S-S and then the letter X. It's sort of like Scrabble-style crossword puzzle game. It's only $10 and it might be something that your puzzle game collection is missing. Chime also came out. Now, if you always thought that Tetris, Kicks, and Res should have just been one game, then Chime is for you. It's only $5, but it is 800 megabytes because of the incredible soundtrack that accompanies your Tetris-style Kicks block placement and Res. Darwinia also came out for $15. Now, this is another really unique type of game. It combines Carnivore, Tron, Cybermorph, Civilization, and Cannon Fodder. All into one hard-to-define title. And speaking of futuristic retro mishmash of genre and games, Greedcore came out for $10. This is a multiplayer, tower defense, hexagonal building, mining strategy, cool 1930s music type of game. Enough said on that. Give it a go if you like strategy-style games. But a game that's already in the top of downloads, 2K Games brings us the misadventures of PB Winterbottom. They hit a fantastic price point of $10 with this. This is really, really cool. You play the part of P.B. Winterbottom, who's like this 1930s-style, dick-dastardly, black-and-white, film-damage sort of looking character and environment. There's subtle, sepia-like color undertones when necessary to increase the drama. And you are in search of the cosmic pie. And there's a lot of time play involved. In fact, you hold down the one trigger to record a VHS copy of yourself doing certain things, VHS mishmash with black and white damaged film. It's, It's really just such a unique atmosphere. And they mix this time play with clone making to try to solve the puzzle of how to collect all the pies on any given level. So check out the demo! All right, TT, can you do that thing that I asked you to do for me? I'm ready, willing, on cables. Keith, let's open it up. Let's get Steve Ritchie on the line. Hollister, California! Steve Ritchie! Go! Thank you for joining us when we talk games. Nice talking to you, Wade. Steve, you are now one of the most well-known names in pinball, and your online biography gives us a nice overview of your continuing gaming run. I've read online how you got your first taste for gaming, but I'd love to go a little bit deeper into some of those earliest gaming experiences. Any games that stick out in your memory, any mechanicals or other stories? My first pinball experiences were when I was about five years old. My father used to take me to Playland at the beach in San Francisco. It was a weird place, you know, and I, I remember wood rail games there, now that I know what a wood rail is. They didn't have any legs on them. They were bolted to, like, a big, long block of wood, 
or a wooden box, I guess. So you just walk up to a game with no legs at all underneath it. Uh, but you couldn't move the game much either. Not that I was trying to be a, a big uh, a biffer at, uh, at five years old. <laughs> anyway, um, my dad really loved them too. And my dad was like, well, my dad was kind of a bad man. When he was younger in San Francisco, grocery stores had pinball machines in them. And uh, they had a knockoff button. And when you won a replay, you didn't win a replay. You won things like groceries or whatever. I mean, it was the same as cash. They were basically gambling machines. One night, they found a way to slide the glass off with the guy that owned the grocery store was in the back. They slid it off, and they were running up all kinds of switches. And then the guy came out and stood next to him, and he said, how's it going, boys? And they said, well, it's fine. We're doing pretty well on the pinball machine. And the guy did not notice that there was no glass on the game and just <laughs> went about his business. So after they ran up a bunch of credits, you know, they'd cash them in at the uh, checkout, and, uh, well, it was cheating. Wow. I haven't heard that story before. Oh, I haven't told it much. What are some of your earliest memories of playing pinball? I guess when I was about 10 years old, my parents joined a bowling alley in Pacifica, California. That's where I got to play a lot of pinball machines very often. And uh, they were uh, 10 cents a play or three for 25. While they were bowling, I would play pinball. They, they'd give me a dollar. So I had to, you know, kind of, I mean, they'd be there for a few hours. So I had to make it last. You know, I got to be pretty good. And it was fun. As we grow this show with our interviews, we realize more and more the entanglement of early game creation. You began your game career at Atari, but it was far from developing video games or pins. What was the early environment at Atari, and can you give us any more of the backstory not mentioned in your online biography? I actually began my, my game design career at Atari. To make a long story short, I was a musician before that, and I had a pretty cool rock band going, and we were making a little money, but not enough. And I got tired of being poor, so I went to Atari and uh, walked in the door, and the first thing you notice is all these pretty ladies running around, young, beautiful women, and the radio is blasting rock and roll, and it's stereo right there in the lobby, and it was pretty funky. I filled out an application, and they hired me for uh, work as an electromechanical technician. I designed a test fixture for them that had, a, you know, like a universal plug system so any, any Atari game you picked up could be played and tested just using the board. All the controls for all their games were built into this thing. And I built in a big, giant burn-in oven system, high current, uh, making harnesses, things like that. After I was there for about a year, one of the vice presidents walked up to me and he said, we're going to start a pinball division. Would you like to be part of it? And I said, sure. So uh, they hired a guy who built himself as a game designer, but later on when I went to Williams, I found out that he was a mechanical engineer. Nevertheless, he came to Atari from Chicago and began helping us, and every day he would lecture. He's kind of grumpy, but a good person, and he would, every day he would say, we're never going to make it. We will never build pinball machines. Your bosses are crazy, but we're going to give it a shot. And uh, his name is Bob Jonasy. And he taught me how to assemble a pinball machine. He drew a drawing, and I would build it up for him. And also, we, we got in uh, two machines from competitors. Let's see, we got a, we got a uh, space mission from Williams, and what was the other game? 
I'm not sure. It was Captain Fantastic. Anyway, I got to play those like crazy, had a great time, but I was ending up building prototypes and finally uh, getting the game uh, on the line, and, and the line was a shambles. I mean, nobody at Atari knew how to even make pinball production line. It was a train wreck from the very beginning because all the culture for pinball was located in Chicago, so everything had to be shipped out. So they would buy boards from Electronic Sound or Triple Cabinet. When I say boards, I'm talking about screened play fields with none of the parts on them. They'd put them in the truck in Chicago, say in the dead of summer or winter, didn't matter. Then they'd drive them across to California, and when we opened up the back of the truck to unload these things, Almost every one of them were warped from a huge difference in climate. So they had to be unwarped, every board, and uh, lots of other trials and tribulations at Atari. It was very interesting. After a while, I took a, a piece of wood with no cuts on it, again, a play field, and, and taped some paper onto it and began drawing a game. I thought, well, this old guy can draw pinball machines, but they're not very interesting, and so I think I could do this. So I started working on one on my own at home. When it was finished, uh, I brought it to my boss, the vice president of engineering, and he uh, he said, no, I don't want you designing pinballs. I just don't want you to do that. So I said, fine. I waited a day or so, but uh, after that, I just went to Nolan Bushnell because I had a burning desire to make pinball machines, and I thought I could do it. So I brought my design to the president, Nolan Bushnell, and asked him, if he would take a look at it. And he said, sure. So he looked at it and he said, you did this all at home? And I said, yes. And he says, well, I want you to build it up. From today on, you're a designer. And we'll get you a cubicle and a drafting machine and a team of people and we're gonna go for it. So I was the happiest guy in the world at that point. I made two games there. And as an aside, I also met Eugene Jarvis. His first game was my first game, Airborne Avenger. Airborne Avenger was a very interesting game, but pretty amateurish. Eugene Jarvis went on to be a great game programmer. He's now the owner of Raw Thrills, a video game company in Chicago. And we got to work on quite a few games together, I guess about four. And uh, at Atari, we did uh, Airborne Avenger and then Superman. And they both sold better than the previous ones. Did you have anything to do with the Hercules pin or an opinion about it? Um, the Hercules pin was uh, delivered to us from uh, Hialeah, Florida, I think it was. It was a development done by a company that wasn't pinball at all. It was Ronnie Halliburton, who uh, is still a game designer in Florida. I think he does redemption games mostly now. Hercules was delivered in, but it was called Bigfoot at, at the time. Uh, Bally had it for a while, but wasn't interested in building it. So it was brought in, and uh, people began to work on changing the artwork, but not any of the geometry or anything, and, and began building the game. They sold quite a few. I'm not sure it was worth the energy and the money that it cost to, to make it, but you know, it was a big, fun thing. and. It was a special item in our case. I think they got a pretty good buck for each unit also. And speaking about changing artwork on Bigfoot to Hercules, I've got to tell you that one of the things I absolutely adore about the Atari pins is the unmistakable gorgeous Atari artwork. Atari definitely made up for primitive graphics possible even on their video game hardware with those amazing box art graphics and the graphics on their pins. The artwork... Uh 
on Atari uh, products was spectacular. And I got to tell you, uh, I've never seen it done the way it was done at Atari. Um, when I think of uh, Atari art artwork, I think of George Opperman. He was a great artist. He wouldn't just design the play field. Well, I mean, here I am, a young guy, and I don't know, he's 40-something, and he's walking up to me and he says, okay, you're, you're making this game called the Airborne Avenger. What do you see the artwork about? He actually asked me. From then on, we always, you know, we always consulted with each other uh, on all the teams that I ran to, to make pinball machines. But this was the first time on Airborne Avenger, and I thought, wow, this is great. I can actually talk to him about it. And, and we came up with a good plan. Anyway, the guy was spectacular and also meticulous. Uh, every little detail done correctly. A really nice person to work with and have fun with. And uh, he would not only do the play field, he would do the plastics, the back glass, the cabinet, the brochure, and then the display at shows. So it was a totally unified look for all of our products. He would do that for every game, or he would have his uh, subordinates, let's see, Bob Flamati was one, um, quite a few other guys. With the art, you're right, though, the, the art is absolutely gorgeous, and uh, I, uh, you know, I miss that. And George passed away, uh, I don't know, 20 years ago. It was a sad day. What were some of your favorite innovations in the titles you helped create? I personally need to have that lane change capability. I also enjoy multi-ball, magnet shenanigans and all, although I love your multi-play field work, I usually stink at it greatly. Well, my favorite innovations, definitely lane changes up there. So it was simple. It happened one night while Eugene and I were working on uh, firepower. And I asked him, can you, uh, can you like, move the light? What I want to do is I would like to move an unlit lane underneath the ball. And uh, he wrote the code. I, I think it was done the same night. And we began using lane change and thought it was a lot of fun. And also, I think a cool advancement in pinball in that, for that, you didn't get to do much except move the flippers. Uh, basically, the only player control was flippers. There were a few games that had buttons, like I'm thinking the, uh, what is it, the Gator Grabber, and only a couple of other games that had any other input or game-changing ability other than flipping the flippers. I like people to score the lanes many times during a game. It's kind of fun. Why not let them? Multiball was not my innovation. There were other games with multiball before I got there, but I was the first to have a solid-state multiball game, and that, well, it utilized the power of the computer. Um, I was able to, uh, you know, hold the locks in memory, uh, equalize things. The multi-ball device that I developed at Williams was was made from a hole kicker, and there used to be this little metal track that stayed above the play field on uh, flat games in those days, and I just pulled the uh, the metal part down below the play field, and so when the balls kicked up from the drain over to the shooter, they would stop, and they were stopped by the edge of the wood, and then popped back up to wood level right in front of the shooter. Anyway, it was a pretty cheap and uh, and cool system, and it worked, I don't know, we used it probably for seven or eight years. I loved working with Magnus, of course. I guess my favorite thing about Magnus Save is that it's got a secondary use. It actually had a, a value. It's another one of those controllable things that the player could operate skillfully or un and grab the ball and actually get rewarded by having the ball go back to the flipper instead of down the drain. I don't know. I'm pretty proud of the uh, the accelerator, too, the ball accelerator used on um, No Fair and... Uh, 
I'm not thinking getaway at this point, but I'm thinking about three coils in a row on a metal trough. It, it was fun, and it, it allowed me to get the ball up higher in the cabinet. you got to be careful when you lay out shots that the ball has enough energy on it to get to the top of things, even when the flippers get old. So you can only go so high with things. Anyway, that allowed me to put a huge amount of acceleration on the ball and, uh, and bring it up to a really high level in, inside the cabinet. I guess multi-level it was a pretty important innovation. It was fun. I, I have to say, though, that all designers were talking about a multi-level pinball machine. And uh, here's another aside story. This is interesting. This is like, there was a restaurant called the, uh, the Round Robin. It was like kind of centrally located between Williams and Bally and Stern Pinball Companies. Gottlieb was out in the... Uh, out in the suburbs, so we very seldom saw anybody that worked at Gottlieb. But on Fridays, when we went to the Red Robin, we also called it the Dinosaur Club. Uh, I hate to admit it, but now I'm a dinosaur. I'm as old as those guys were then. But uh, we called it the Dinosaur Club, and we went there and met everyone in the pinball business. Norm Clark, that's the first time I met Gary Stern there. I did meet Alvin Gottlieb there in the beginning. I met Harry Williams there. All the other designers, Greg Kamick, Jim Patla from Bally, and then all the guys from, from Williams, uh, Pat Waller, uh, and Barry Osler, my brother, uh, Tony Kramer, Dennis Nordman. We see Greg Ferris there. Anyway, we all knew each other, and we didn't talk about games much, but we did all talk about multi-level games. And uh, I think everybody had the idea, but I'm just the guy that did it. The day I met Harry Williams, I was introduced by Gary Stern to him. Gary Stern said, this was what, maybe 30 years ago? He said, uh, Steve, this is uh, Harry Williams. I'd like to meet him. Harry stuck out his hand and said, hi, Rich. Good to meet you. And I said, hi, Bill. Good to meet you. And Harry said, my name's not Bill. And I said, my name's not Rich. Anyway, we had a big laugh, and that's how I met him. The interesting thing about Harry Williams was that to sit down and talk to him, I, I think he was in his late 60s at the time. He was the same age as us. I think I was 28 when I met him. But that's what you felt. You felt like he was the same age. He was having a good time doing what he's doing, clowning around, you know. Just a funny guy, too. Real sharp wit. I really enjoyed his company. I, I didn't get to talk to him a whole lot more because he wasn't working at Williams. He was working with Gary Stern over at Stern Pinball, the first Stern Pinball. Another feature on a pinball table I really enjoy is a mini post between the flippers. I think I've, I've probably used it on three or four games. Sometimes a geometry that I just love uh, and everybody loves has uh, an occasional nasty drain straight down the middle. And uh, it's depressing, and I, I, don't like, I don't like to upset the player. The game will make less money. They'll come away feeling not so good, and uh, so I fixed them. And what I did was I put a, a little mini post between the flippers. I'm not the first guy to do it. I think Steve Kirk may have been, or it may have been, you know, at some other earlier point, but he always called it the Kirk post. So Steve Kirk gets the credit for that post between the flippers. Some of my favorite titles include Monster Bash, WWF Royal Rumble, High Speed 2, Fun House, and if I include other pins that also play on my nostalgia feelings, I'd include Royal Guard, King Cool, 8-Ball, uh, the 1977 8-Ball, Gorgar, Xenon, and Black Knight. Uh, do you have any comments on my favorites 
And what are some of your favorites to play? Monster Bash was a great game. I, I like playing it. I didn't get a, a chance to play it all that much because I had already left Williams to go work at Atari when Monster Bash came out. But it's a nice piece. Plays well. Good fun. That's like uh, most of the guys that I know that are excellent pinball players like Roger Sharp and uh, Lyman Sheets, uh, Keith Johnson. These, these guys all have a monster bash because it's a good player's game. WWF Royal Rumble, I don't know. It sounds like uh, sounds like a good backyard bonfire to me. <laughs> but, uh, you know, pe- people have their taste. Uh, <laughs> isn't that rude? Anyway, um, High Speed 2, eh, it's a fun game. It's not very difficult and or hard to understand, but I'm proud of it. It plays nice. The reason why it, it plays ZZ Top's LaGrange is because that is such a good driving tune. And I don't know if people relate to driving tunes. I love to drive, especially fast. And um, that tune just rocks when you're driving. I don't know. It's just... A great song. Funhouse, another great game. Kind of scary, but cool. And, uh, and well, funky. And uh, it, it was a good game. It earned very well. Sold many a lot of machines. Um, Royal Guard, I don't know anything about. King Cool. Oh, that's that bad scissor slipper arrangement at the bottom. You can have that one, too. That one should be thrown on the fire, I think, with uh, Royal Rumble out in the backyard. <laughs> Eight Ball was an excellent game. Totally in love with it. We were uh, at Atari, and we we were, like, totally enamored. I only wish that the Atari product could be anywhere near as good as Eight Ball was when it happened. And I really, really wanted to make a game with the narrow standard size. Right after I saw Eight Ball, it was like... Yeah, we should be doing that. Why are we, you know, making these wide-body games? Gorgar was, um, no, it was a landmark game in terms of the first game that spoke. I'm not in love with it. It doesn't have to go on the fire, but what is it? I don't know. It's not really a shooter's game. I'm not sure what it is. Xenon, of course, was a landmark game. Played nice, sounds good. Sexy lady, I love the tube. Black Knight, what do you want me to do? You want me to boast about my own game? I... I loved making the Black Knight. It was fun. Uh, it was addictive. And uh, I liked the multi-ball feature. What I didn't like was I wasn't allowed to use 50-volt flippers because they hadn't been invented yet. And I begged for them at the beginning of the project. It was the first multi-level game, and I knew I needed the power to get up and down those ramps reliably over time. Things where you have to account for that. Well, we sold about 12,000 of them. It would have sold 20,000, but... A good friend who will remain nameless worked at Williams at the same time as I did. And at that point in time, we did not have individual offices. We were like in a bullpen, bullpen with, with cubicles with fairly low walls. And uh, while I was drawing Black Knight, I had about half the game drawn. And this guy defected to Bally and basically copied everything that I had on the uh, left side of the play field. That game was Flash Gordon. Wow. Well, it was a, a nasty scene at the AMOA show in Chicago. It's with the president of the company being held back by the marketing uh, VP and uh, the engineering VP from ripping this guy's head off right there on the floor. It was disgusting. 
anyway, we would have probably solved, you know, upwards of 20,000 machines if that hadn't happened. And to top it off, I let this guy live with me. I got him the job at Williams. And he was a decent game designer and an excellent draftsman, far better than I was. But, you know, he was a copy machine. So it it was kind of a bad scene. Now that I have peed on all your favorite games, what are you going to do to me? <laughs> well, I guess if they have to be peed on, it's probably best to be peed on by one of the biggest names in pinball. I mean, no, you know, of course, that's my opinion about games, and it doesn't diminish how I still feel about them. I just want to know your take on those. And speaking about peeing on things, when we originally contacted you, I mentioned that I'd love to know how you felt about the Nintendo 8-bit versions of some of the hot Williams machines like Pinbot and also one of yours, High Speed. And I was surprised that you never heard of these titles. Well, not really surprised since the video game crowd and the pinball crowd are not necessarily the same audience. But I happen to be a big fan of video pinball, especially like video pinball games that do things that you can't do unless you're using like Pinball 2000 or something. But you have produced video games and you enjoy PC games and video games. Have you ever played any video pinball games worth mentioning? I'll tell you, I don't remember ever seeing Nintendo 8-bit versions of Williams Machines um, or High Speed uh, or uh, Pinbot. I, uh, I I never have played them. I I can appreciate a good video simulation of pinball. I mean, uh, especially now, there's some really nice things on uh, Nanotech has a decent machine and a, a couple of games that are reasonable. I'm impressed by them, but it, it seems like you know video pinball machines just don't have a huge audience. And I, I, I think it's growing. I think it is growing uh, to to play on your uh, your PlayStation Three or um, Xbox. Uh, the games look spectacular, and uh, you're definitely drawn in much more than any other you know format for a video pinball. But video pinball has traditionally been uh, video game players don't like them, and, and you know mechanical or electronic mechanical pinball players don't like them either. However. I have played some, and I, I do enjoy them. On the subject of video pinball, I, uh, I attempted to work with, with Nanotech, but they are uh, uh, very mm, difficult to deal with. I'll leave it at that. And there is another company that I'm talking to right now about developing some uh, video pinball product, Fresh Steve Ritchie Designs. What are some of your favorite video game titles? Wow, video game titles. My favorite video game of all time, Robotron. Such a mind blower. I mean, I I shouldn't say my favorite of all time. My favorite coin-op video game is Robotron. I think there's no doubt about that. These these are my friends and and also, you know, co-designers of Black Knight and Firepower F-14 Tomcat, Airborne Avenger, Superman, Eugene Jarvis, and Larry DeMar were the guys behind um, Robotron. And it's just such a cool game because, you know, it really can't be played well at home either. You need that big, heavy cabinet and the twin joysticks. You can drag the game around by them, and uh, and I often did uh, trying to, you know, survive in that game. Anyway, it's... Total adrenaline. I loved it. I loved Asteroids. When I was at Atari, you know, I, there was a huge range. I, I loved Track 10, Track 20. Tank. Love Tank. Uh, you know, I mean, these are all great games in their era. Some were very simplistic. Later games, there's hardly any video drivers that I hate. I really loved uh, Eugene's um, Cruising World, Cruising USA series. 
cruising exotica, just fun drivers, or you know, you know. But I also like the Sega drivers, where they were they're more technical and uh, maybe a cleaner look. But I really think that the casual driver is more fun for me, anyway. I like Tempest a lot. Tempest was a great video game. Wow, I mean, I play video games for more than I play pinball. Right now, I am playing. Um, I might be a little bit behind the times, but I'm I'm playing uh, Call of Duty Four, uh, Modern Warfare. I still like Far Cry. It's a, a great landmark piece. It's totally fun. I, you play it in a dark room at night. It's like wow, just gripping. I love playing Doom. In fact, Doom Doom crippled Williams and the entire pinball department <laughs> would be on it. But I mean it didn't really cripple it. It just stopped all after hours work. And game design is a vocation where you your work basically never ends. If you if you don't like overtime, you don't want to be a game designer because to make a great game takes more than forty hours a week on everyone on the team's part, pretty much. It's in our blood. I mean, the passion's there. I don't care. I, I don't mind working longer or uh, or harder to make something great. And it's like making a record on a multi-track machine. You can keep doing it over and over until it's right before you release it. It's just a great opportunity to make something, you know, as close to perfect and fun as you can. And it's... I, uh, you know, I, I love making games. Now, people have seen your work, people have interacted with your work, and people can also hear your work. You were the voice of Black Knight, and somehow you became the voice of Shao Kahn in Mortal Kombat. Can you tell us a little bit about your voice acting work? I really believe in um, imparting as much of a personality into a machine as I can. If, if the game requires it, you're not going to really... There is a slight personality or a couple of them in high speed. You hear interaction between the cop uh, who's on the road and the dispatcher who's back in the police station. That was the beginning of, of, of my first involvement with making a story, building a story in some characters with people that spoke. And, and um, it was cool interaction between the two. Of course, it exploded since then. And uh, I really enjoyed doing Black Knight. And in those days, we had to do everything. I, well, Black Knight was, we would get the best bang for the buck because the memory was so small that I would have to say everything in monotone. I am the Black Knight. Ooh. I would have to say it all in monotone so that... We could say, the Black Knight will slay you. Uh, And the words can be assembled in many different configurations. So that's why the Black Knight was all monotone and also firepower. So we could build more sentences out of uh, the words. As time went on and memory got cheap, we began to get a lot more uh, personalized. And before T.T. Fryzer's Central Processing Unit, how was it that you got asked to do the more human-like voice of Shao Kahn? Well, I got asked by Ed Boon and um, Dan Forden, just the best sound man in the whole business, in the whole damn game business, Dan Forden. Ed Boon, of course, is a master game designer. Uh, Mortal Kombat is uh, his claim to fame, but he also programmed F-14 Tomcat as a rookie. We kind of broke him in, Yuji and I. Um, that was his first game. And uh, he was a very excellent programmer, hard worker, and a passionate gamer, and just a great guy to hang, hang with and, and have fun. Great wit. Oh, God. Dan and uh, Boone, that's what we called him. We didn't call him Ed ever. We never called him Ed. We only called him Boone. Hey, Boone. Ed Boone said, hey, you want to be the voice of this 
oriental wizard kind of guy, you know, martial arts, and uh, you know, I had an idea what he sounded like, and uh, but but actually, I got all the coaching from Dan Forden. We spent many many hours in the studio making that voice and making that that character. I don't remember that much of it. It's well, all my voices are generally lowered in pitch, uh, synthetically, and uh, I really enjoy it. I have fun, and I get into the character. I feel the emotions and can express them appropriately. I, uh, I, I have a great time doing it. Now, you actually worked for Atari two times in your gaming career. What was your second run like there? I did uh, actually work for Atari two times. First time was the very beginning of my career when I just walked in the door knowing nothing. And the last time was 1996. And I hate to say it, but the writing was on the wall at Williams. We weren't selling very many pinball machines. Uh, the income wasn't as great. No matter, well, you know, my best work, I could only sell 6,000 machines of my best work. And so I, I didn't think... Uh, and I always like to be a provider for the company. It kept my value very high. When I when I work on a game, I want it to be excellent. And my team knows that. I love working with excellent people, and I have been fortunate to work with the best. It's just sad when you when you, when you you know you do your best work, and then the uh, you know the contribution of the company isn't enough. I mean, our video games are making much more money. Williams had let my contract run out, too, which they had never done before. They'd always come back and say, okay, when are you going to sign your new contract? Well, they didn't. They forgot all about it. And that definitely expressed how much interest they had in continuing in pinball. So I began to look for a job, and I took a vacation back out here to California, my home. I started looking back out here, and I walked into the new Atari and saw some of the guys that were still there from the first time I was there. I started talking to them. And I, I made a deal, and uh, it, it seemed pretty good. We were, we were like maybe halfway through it. They were definitely trying to pay me less than I wanted to get paid, but but something was going on. Well, I got back from Atari and went back to work at Williams, and um, I found out the next day from when I got back that Williams had bought Atari. I had no idea what was going on, and that they knew that I was dealing with them. They purchased Atari, and I went up to see Ken Fidesz in the office, and I said, well, look, the guys bought the company I was going to get hired at. I would like a transfer. What do you think? And he said, sure, we can do that. So I got to move back here and work for Atari, and I made a couple of uh, video games there, produced them with a team of um, very good people, very nice people, but uh, not experienced. And it was it was a tough road to hoe, especially on the first one, California Speed. It was a two-year project. But in, uh, at the end of the day, it sold very well. It was worth, I don't know, $60 million worth of sales or something. And then, and then I did a game there called Mean Streak. And that was a lot of fun, but it was canceled. Wow, I would say it had maybe six more months of work to go. Uh, and they called me and said, okay, well, we're going to let you go. And... I still had like a year and a half left on my contract, and, and Williams was very good about it and continued to pay me, but they shut down Atari completely, which was sad. Can you tell us a bit more about what went into California Speed? California Speed was um, it was a very interesting journey, no doubt. Uh, there were 15 people on the team, I guess, and only one guy on the team had ever been a part of a development project that had actually been manufactured. 
Nobody else on the team had any experience at all. So it was a tough time. And I, I think it was an obstacle set up so that I, I might fail there. I think I think management at Atari at that time thought that I was a spy for Williams. I can't say it for sure. I can say that I had a great time there with Mark Pierce. I think he knew that I wasn't spying. I think the president did, though. I think he thought I would be reporting to the people at Red Williams, you know, like on a daily basis. But I didn't. I, I became part of Atari's culture and uh, remained loyal. Going back to your voice acting, have you voiced any other characters that our listeners might be familiar with? Actually, I've done a, a ton of characters. I think Barry Alzer was kind of making fun of me, but he said he asked me to be the dummy in Comet. And I was supposed to say, hey, Turkey, come on, hit me. Things like that. So I was the dummy in that game. I did voice work on Taxi. I'm not sure what character, though. I don't remember. It might have been Gordy, but I'm not sure. I was General Yagoff in F-14, and my brother was Hitman. And there was, you know, constant dialogue going on between those guys during the game. I was the announcer on high-impact football. And man, that, was, that made me hoarse. It was definitely high-energy. I think I did a lot of voice work on Space Station, too, but I don't remember a single quote. Um, I don't know. People would come and get me when they wanted a, uh, a bad guy voice or uh, something emotional. Did your choice to make the Star Trek The Next Generation a wide body have anything to do with the Atarians or the Atari wide body designs? Actually, the Star Trek The Next Generation uh, wide body dimensions are not of the same width as the Atarians or Atari games. In fact, they were too wide. It's, you know, shots on the outside, you know, on both the left and right side on Atari uh, design are really tough to make, and it's really not such a playable part of the game. But you, you go in a couple inches on each side or an inch or so, and it's suddenly you have a lot more room. The shots are makeable. The wide play fields or super pins that we made uh, allowed us to put one or two more shots and uh, a lot more components into the game. Star Trek was a very elaborate game, and I could not have done all that on a narrow body. It really didn't have anything to do with being on the Enterprise or anything else. It was it was about playability and uh, more stuff on the game. It's we had to constantly step up everything. We had I felt the need to try and go beyond you know every game, at least in that era, to the next thing with innovations. And uh, we actually did to capture the sales. I mean, we had to do that. We had to innovate and and continue uh, developing new things. It's true today too, but. It was really tough at Stern uh, because they have such a, well, we'll get into that. Whenever we talk pinball on the show, I have to ask, were you aware of George Lucas's conspiracy to kill pinball? Actually, um, as far as I remember, I, I, I don't think I've ever heard of uh, George Lucas's conspiracy to destroy pinball. I, uh, I have no idea. And uh, it just refers to his influence over what the game designers were doing there. Uh, I don't know. It sounds like someone's opinion, but I, I doubt that George Lucas actually set out to destroy pinball. But really, are, are you aware of the home ROM availability of George Lucas's famous voice acting outtakes for episode one of Pinball 2000, where he says, F you, pinball, when you hit Princess Amidali in the face with a bonus ball? Actually, I, I'm not aware of the home mom uh, either. It was, uh, it was George Lucas's voice. I have no idea. I had no idea it existed. 
I know who to get in touch with, though, to, to talk about this. <laughs> I'm actually most likely confusing that with your home ROM version of the T2 table that has the infamous Schwarzenegger outtake voiceovers. <laughs> That's pretty funny. I, uh, on T2, uh, we didn't ask Arnold Schwarzenegger for his, uh, well, basically his you all quote. It just was on the tape. And, um, he had to go into a mobile studio in Mexico at the time we needed a speech. And I don't think he was particularly happy with us, but he did a great job with the voice. It was funny. He said some funny stuff, too. But, uh, you, you know, and he may have been a little annoyed, but he still did the work, and it was excellent as far as we were concerned. Everything was totally usable on TQ. And, uh, you know, it was a major coup to get him to speak on a pinball machine. It's like... I don't know. We had a great time making T2. And then and T2, uh, I went to get it. I, I, nobody was aware at Williams that um, the original Terminator movie, James Cameron's first movie, was like, for me, the best B movie ever made. Just so cool. Good story. Nice twist for its era. When I found out that he was going to be making T2, I jumped on it and, uh, you know, I asked Roger Sharp and, you know, Ken Fidesna, the general manager at the time, if we could go get this license. And they said, sure. What an adventure it was. It was spectacular. We went, uh, let's see, Doug Watson, the artist for T2, and Dwight Sullivan, the programmer, and I were shipped down to Lightstorm Studios and we got to wander around and uh, check out, you know, all the cool things they had there. And then, and then we got like three hours with James Cameron, the man himself, sitting in his office talking to him. And he was, he was great to us. We were blown away. We go in there and he's got this huge credenza that's curved along one wall and on it is the one of the stop action models, maybe two feet high of of the Terminator character that they use for miniatures and it's made of all metal, it's awesome. You can play with it. You can play with the uh the forklift thing that Sigourney Weaver got in in, in Aliens and um it was just an amazing day. Anyway, he was a gamer, and uh, he had suggestions for the game, and he wasn't really pushy about it, but what I really liked was he gave us more cooperation on that title than any company had ever given us before on a license. It was We got dailies. Everything they shot on the day, we, we'd get them the next day at, at Williams, and we'd, we'd see where, where, you know, how things were progressing with the movies. Everything they shot the day before it was more than I could look at. He loaned us things like the chip, a Terminator skull. He loaned us the actual arm that was in the movie. You know, remember the metal arm uh, in a glass box? It, it, we had it. We were holding it in our hands. Any cooperation that we needed, we'd go back down. At the same time, we were making a Terminator 2 gun game. George, uh... George Petro and his team were uh, making that uh, Terminator 2 video game, and it was fun, too. So we were really utilizing everything they could get for us. And it was a great license, great time. We had exactly one year to make T2, and we were in the theaters on the 4th of July of that year with all the games. It was all all ready to go, and uh, it was just a spectacular time. And we sold, uh, what, 15,200 and two machines. I, I actually own the very last game on the line. Were the doors of James Cameron still open for the Avatar license? In, in terms of Avatar, 
The answer is yes. Gary Stern just sent me out to Lightstorm to check out uh, Avatar. And uh, uh, again, uh, two and a half years ago, I don't know, I, I just believe in Avatar. I, I knew that they were making the movie, and I'm um, a James Cameron fan, and I know he just doesn't fail, and uh, Avatar sounded so good that I went to get it. And, and uh, at first, Gary Stern did not want to get it, but then he checked with... Uh, some uh, respected licensing people. I'm pretty sure he called Roger Sharp on this. And anyway, he did agree, you know, to go and get it. So yes, I went down to Lightstorm, and uh, again, I didn't get to meet James Cameron this time, but I got to read the script and and check out uh, sets and uh, props. It was a great meeting. Loved it. Loved every second of it. Totally enthralled. Great theme for a pinball machine. I just wish it could have been built, but it wasn't in the cards. And uh, I'm pretty sure there's going to be a sequel, you know, and I'd, I'd love to make a pinball about that. Or a video game. Either one. I would love it. It's a perfect vehicle for a, uh, for a game. You have revisited some of your themes, and I really, really like that, especially if it helps expand the mythology of the creation. I don't mind making making sequels if they can be really good. If you leave the market open and, and people really want to see the next installment, uh, you know, of, of any existing theme. Like, The Getaway is is, is really a, a driving game uh, that uh, there's a few things that it has in common with high speed, but not many. It's just, it's just another driving theme pinball machine. But High Speed 2 was, I didn't really think of it as a sequel, but yeah, I mean, the cops are after you, but the accelerator thing, all that is completely different. The rules were, like, uh, quite different. I, I like making Black Knight 2000, and actually, actually, there's room for another sequel there. I have a nice idea for uh, a third Black Knight game, although he might not be black. I don't know. Um, I would love to see your take on an Evil Knievel pinball machine. It's hard for me to imagine that because I'm not the designer of the first Evil Knievel pinball machine. However, I am a lifetime motorcyclist. I've been riding motorcycles for 50 years, and I can still get down in the dirt. And dirt is extremely strenuous, but I, I just love it. It's one of the most fun things I, I can think of doing. I love motorcycles, and um, I could definitely see an Evil Knievel pinball update. It could be awesome, too. You know, maybe. I assume the majority of our listeners do not own a pinball machine, myself included, unfortunately. Do you have any advice about becoming a pinball owner? Get with somebody who owns a game and try and figure out what you want. That's that's the biggest thing. There will be lots of games available, but if you don't know what you want, set yourself up for uh, possible problems. You should know a game before you want to buy it and like it a lot. You need to play it and find out if it's the game for you because you're going to be playing it for a long time. You're going to be spending money probably fixing it up uh, you know it's going to take time and energy so it should be something that you love to play and that you already know the other the other thing is to get on uh, some uh, news groups like uh, rec.games.pinball that's a uh, that's a great source if you want to know what a good game is or what you should pay for a game uh, a title there's always somebody on there who has experience with with every title or any title they'll come out of the woodwork to help you Steve Ritchie, what's next? 
When you say what's next, what's next? I, you know, I'm not really sure. I have a website. It's called steverchiepinball.com. And right now I'm selling tons of stuff, autograph things, uh, a lot of uh, pinball rarities. I've developed a few products. Um, this is what I'm doing right now because there isn't work for me in pinball right now. Stern is kind of struggling and... There are some opportunities coming up. There's a, there's a company making video pinball, and we have been talking. Uh, something may come of that. It's possible that someone else may be manufacturing pinballs in the near future. And that's what I'm doing right now, developing new products for my website. Anyway, that's steverchiepinball.com with a T. Steve Ritchie, R-I-T-C-H-I-E. Well, Steve, thank you so very much for being part of We Talk Games. You know, Wig, I've had a lot of fun here talking to you, and uh, I always love talking about pinball and meeting pinball people. It's my first love. It was great meeting you, great talking to you. Thanks, pal. Have a good day. Bye now. Bye. Wow, Steve Ritchie, steverichiepinball.com. He, he, what a gracious and fun-loving guy. I could call him right now and uh, get him back on for a couple more hours, I'm sure. And yet another one of the cornerstones of this industry appearing on We Talk Games. Keith, let's get Jaden on the line. Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, Jaden. What's going What's on, up? man? You know, this is the pinball voice losing edition of We Talk Games. So uh, hopefully you can uh, help us out on both fronts. Uh, we're going to talk about pinball games for your iPhone. Now, I, I have a couple of games for my iPod here. I, of course, got Wild West, which is free. Then they tried to get you into buying their paid version of their pinball, the Deep which is uh, very relevant with the youth of today, The Deep, uh, which has nothing to do with the movie, but it's like a uh, aquatic-based robot ghost town pinball-related game. PB Dreams also came out, which is a remake of an older-style game. Pinball R, uh, which is sort of like a uh, Maserati super spy pinball game you can get the free version of that which is a very limited time trial i have a game called monster which is very reminiscent of time cruise for the pc engine or the turbo graphics in that it's all these sideways and front ways and lateral and up and down and things like this different little pinball machines that you can go over to the the other levels. I also have Undead Attack, which is more of a zombie-related pinball game, which is actually one of my favorites. So those are some of the pinball... I thought I had had more, but I think those are some of the ones that I've played. And I have to say, probably Undead Attack is my favorite. I really haven't found a, a very good and compelling pinball game on the iPod, but hopefully you can tell us what's good. Well, first of all, I'm going to have to look up that Undead Attack because that sounds kind of neat. For this month's We Talk Games, I tried every pinball game that was under $2 or had a free version. Okay. And then I tried a couple of the more pricey ones, but I tried not to get too many because I'm not a big pinball fan and I'd already spent about $15 on all these games. <laughs> so oh, Wow. Yeah, I, I didn't want to push it too far. But I mean, these, these are still, these games are really cheap. It's not a big investment to try something out. Mm-hmm. It's not like going out and paying $60 for an Xbox game or something and then not liking it and going, oh, I can trade it in for $10 tomorrow. <laughs> right. So rather than losing $50, I lose a buck or two. Right, right. So yeah, I tried pretty much all the games that I could find. 
And out of all of them, the only one that really stood out that I really liked was the monster pinball that you mentioned. Okay. I like the way that it's very animated, it, it's flashy, it's pretty, the controls are perfect, Yeah. and you, you fly around to all these different boards. And my big complaint about it, though, is getting stuck in the bowl. Since you've played it, you know what I'm talking about with the bowl. The center of the board spirals downward, so as your ball flies through, it arcs. Yeah, what are you supposed to do there? I don't know, but I always <laughs> seem to miss the ball as it flies in. Gotcha. Yeah, I, I, I pull my left trigger, and I should have pulled my right instead. Just it, it's frustrating, but I've never played a pinball game with a, a level quite like that. Yeah, we are playing this on the iPod or the iPhone, which doesn't have any buttons. It's all done with the touch screen, so you have your virtual buttons, and you really have to learn how to hold your iPod because if you lean the iPod to one side or the other, as you you're prone to do as you're just trying to you know stabilize yourself or you get comfortable and if the ipod tilts one way or the other as you move then you're going to be pressing down the uh the flipper control the button for the flipper on this gimmick so no matter what game you get you're going to have that problem occurring and most of these games all split the play field into three parts the left side would control the left flipper, the right side would control the right flipper, and then the very top of the game is usually where you could press near your score to pause the game. Exactly. There's really not that much special you can do with touch controls for a pinball game. Mm-hmm. One thing I do like is the ones that have the, uh, the pressure-sensitive launch, where you mm. can slide from the top down, and depending on how far, it'll launch a different speed. Right, right. It's definitely an improvement over Radio Shack Rocket Pinball. Which was all done with uh, LED lights. And, uh, <laughs> I need to make me remember that. <laughs> that was a great pinball. But it's not perfect. It's not perfect on the on the iPhone. But, yeah, Monster Pinball is kind of cool. I like that one. I like the one. I yeah. like the, and I, and I like Undead. I was looking for something that was going to be like Pinball of the Dead, which was is one of my favorite Game Boy Advance games and one of my favorite uh, portable pinballs, I think, of all time. I'd love to see some of these old Sierra pinballs get translated to the iPod because it's definitely powerful enough to do it. Now, I know that you have something not necessarily pinball, but perhaps pinball video game related because most people that like pinball, most people that like video games, also have dabbled in comics. Exactly. And definitely one of the best apps I've downloaded as of recently. It's just called Comics. It's put out by Comixology, so it's a, uh, a pretty well-known internet comic company. And it's a free app, and it lets you download all the free weekly comics that come out for free, obviously. Or if you want to get into other stuff, you can download other comics for $0.99, cents, a dollar, or $2, I mean, or uh, graphic novels for 4 or $5. Mm. They're always much lower priced than the actual print copy. And the thing that gets me is the uh, the support for this. They have uh, all the independent comic companies like Image, Dark Horse. Mm. It also has full support from Marvel Comics. And the Marvel catalog, I'm very impressed, goes back as far as the 50s. So, I mean, oh, you can pick up the original episodes of X-Men and Fantastic Four. That's great. And, I mean, for $2 an episode, how often are you going to be able to pick those up and read them otherwise? 
Yeah, but, you can uh, just go to comicsology.com and you spell comics with an X. And you can see all of the publishers that came out this week. You can subscribe to RSS feeds and everything else. It's really a neat app. I've, I've been using Comic Zeal for quite some time, but Comic Zeal is more of a um, comics on your own type of application where you can't download the newest episode. You have to already have digital copies of, of the comics and then you, you uh, transfer them over to your iPod. But yeah, that's, com- that's the nice thing about the comics app. And it's also a bad thing because I'll be laying in bed. I want to read a comic before I go to sleep. I yeah. download like the latest comic of Invincible and then it has a cliffhanger ending. So I go, oh, what the hell? I'll spend another $2. Let me read the next one. And, of course, that translates into me reading like six or seven in a row before bed instead of one. Yes. Now, I don't know the answer to this. I know my answer, and I hope that your answer is similar. But how stoked are you to be able to read comics on the iPad? Oh, you have no idea. That's the number one reason why I want one. I've said before, until Comic Zeal came around, I really wasn't digging reading comics on my iPod, iPhone, because it was hard for me to see. But if I turned it sideways, it was, almost, it was, it was doable. Can you turn the comics on Comixology sideways to read it? Yeah, you can okay, uh, turn it either way, and uh, it's only panel by panel. Oh, I see. Oh, so, so it's already broken down panel in that. at a time. Very good. And also, the panels will move as you uh, scroll around in them. Gotcha. Uh, when you click next, it'll like move over to another text box, or if it's a big page, it'll start just on the text and then zoom out to the whole page after you've read it. Okay. They really planned ahead with the integration on that to make sure it's completely readable on the iPhone. Very good, very good. I think that was the only drawback of uh, reading a comic on your iPod, iPhone, but it's nice to know that comics uh, from Comixology has that feature built in. But as soon as we get that iPad, I think I think it's a whole new ball game, and, and seeing the comics in full color is really going to be something. Well, hey, Jaden, thank you so very much for joining us on this uh, special edition. It seems like every these past four episodes have been special edition. Well, next month we'll go back to our normal type of format, I think, whatever that is. Yeah, we're still still learning. I don't know what that is. It's just, yeah. It's still evolving, and that's what I like about it. But thanks for being a part of it. I really appreciate it. Hey, my pleasure. Hi, man. It's uh, twitter.com slash the eternal. Find out more about Jaden there. Hey, oh, wow. This is special. This is special. Here's someone that was very influential about changing the public opinion of pinball. Let's get Roger Sharp on the line. Open it up, Keith. Chicago, Illinois! Roger Sharp. No, things are falling off. My voice is rocking. I'm like, va-voom, va-voom. I don't know if you remember Felix the Cat. Oh, I, whoops, I, actually, you're unplugged from the board. Keith, get, okay, now you're back on. Okay. Ugh, it ruined my joke. The coolest mustache in the biz, Roger Sharp. Roger, Thanks. thank you for joining us when we talk games today. My pleasure. Now, you do remember Vavoom? Uh, I do, as a matter of fact. I am of a certain era where uh, that is memorable. And that is relevant, and especially relevant to today's youth. Never heard of them. Now, you are the only person we could think of to provide the gaming glue between pinball and video games. In fact, your skill and approach actually helped save pinball in 1976 from being outlawed uh, by certain bureaucrats. And, and some refer to you as the anti-Lucas, at least 
by some I mean me. Now, you were on the Williams team for many of the projects that Steve Ritchie talked about earlier in our show, and your position at Midway had you involved with all of the top titles that touched just about every gamer, I think, in the United States and worldwide, uh, the Cruising Series, Mortal Kombat 3, NBA Hang Time, uh, to name a few, plus the very, very cool tables that you helped create for Game Plan, and on our show, we have programmers, we have designers, we have producers, we have uh, company owners, executives, competitive gamers, and we have people that are just famous and well-known for being involved around the gaming community. You tie in as a fan, a competitor, a marketer, and a creator. Yeah, it's kind of strange as you start laying it all out. I wonder how I could have all done that in the limited past three decades, but I guess there was enough time. How did you get started in your path to your career and where you are now? Well, simply said, back when I was growing up, uh, there were no video games. I effectively grew up pinball-deprived. And I say that because I think that having been in that situation as a child and not really being exposed to the games, when I was able to encounter them later in life, they had much more of an impact on me. And as I wrote in my book... The first time I played any kind of a coin-operated amusement game was probably about when I was five or six, out on holiday vacation with my parents in California, and uh, started playing these games, and uh, started playing pinball machines, and uh, actually, the game that I reference in the book, where they talk about me being on a, I, they, I talk about me being on an orange crate, was actually an old baseball game with a man-run unit. Sure. Uh, pinball machines back then uh, were kind of like overwhelming to me, but the baseball game I absolutely knew. Press this, ball is coming, swing, and I try to hit the ramp for the home run. It was uh, incredibly intuitive. Fast forward, and I have an older sister, and uh, she went to the University of Illinois, and on those kind of family weekends, we traveled down, and there'd be games in some of the places where we'd go to eat, and it was like, wow, these are kind of neat. But growing up in Chicago where games were outlawed, it wasn't until I went to college that I started playing pinball, and then, I, I don't know, maybe maybe Destiny has a fate for all of this. But started playing, leave Wisconsin to travel to New York after I graduate to uh, start uh, my professional career, which was in advertising, and lo and behold, New York City has no pinball machines. So I kind of went from total ignorance and unfamiliarity to effectively, and I was on a five-year plan in school, uh, five years of you know almost nonstop pinball playing to then, okay, I'm now at famine again. Mm-hmm. And, and the only difference at that stage of my life was that I had the knowledge of pinball, and hence I had the desire to want to play it, and other than driving to New Jersey or Connecticut or other places, and I was living in Manhattan, there was no place to play. I mean, eventually I found a place in the village that had games operating in the back room kind of illegally, but Mm -hmm. when I found myself over at GQ magazine, I had an opportunity to uh, effectively assign myself a story, and the reason and motivation for assigning myself a story was to... Not get a game for free, but to be able to find somebody somewhere that I could buy a pinball machine from. That was the sole motivation. Wow. And uh, in a, I guess, serendipitous way, doing research at a library, finding out there were no books, no anything, and an offhanded comment that I made to the editor about 
needing probably a little bit more time because there's no books in the subject and his comment back being, well, you think you know so much, why don't you write a book? And that's really how everything started. So I go back to it. I mean, I have said it on, on numerous occasions how blessed I feel to have been involved and around the industry for God now uh, 36 years, uh, you know, over half my life, and to have come to it as a, a total foreigner. You know, without any preconceived notions about anything, without any familiarity whatsoever, uh, which I think is potentially why the pinball book has endured now for, what, uh, over 30 years yeah. uh, from when it was published. I mean, it really became a love affair between me and the games, and more importantly, between me and the people I was able to, to meet and befriend. And, and, and from all eras, you know, look, the timing couldn't have been better to meet somebody like Harry Williams and to kind of relive his life with him. Steve Kordak, thank God Steve is still around, but the late Norm Clark, you know, Sam Ginsburg, Herb Jones. I mean, the list kind of goes on and on. People who were there back in the early 1930s who kind of started it all. Mm. And I think that, uh, again, if I had grown up with pinball machines, trust me, none of this... I believe, in all honesty, would have ever happened. I would have just kind of taken them for granted, mm-hmm. would have encountered them when I did, and it would have not been anything special. But again, there's no games here in New York. If I get a game, I can have it in my apartment, and I'll have a pinball machine, and I don't have to start driving on the weekends out to New Jersey for miles upon miles to, uh, to play pinball. Sure. And the timing as well corresponded, if you look at it historically. Uh, and I know you mentioned that Ralph Bear had been on. Mm-hmm. Uh, 1974 was a time where, you know, video was really still in its embryonic stages. So I I kind of was at a crossroads in time with what was going to be happening and what was beginning to evolve for that form of uh, leisure time entertainment. So I I guess in some ways I was there for the start of it all and specifically for video, for home computers and, and all the rest of it. And then again, gratefully through the eyes of people who were there back in the 30s, being able to feel as if I was in the room with Harry Mabs and Alvin Gottlieb seeing, you know, the first flipper bat mm-hmm. being wired because everything was just, you know, so vivid as they recounted their various stories. Now, you say that you came at this from an advertising background. Were you involved in advertising in Manhattan? How did yes. you get called? Oh, I see. And how did you get called before the 1976 New York uh, City Council? Well, um, I started off in advertising as a copywriter and an account exec. And oh, that's right, GQ Magazine. I, I guess I've always kind of fancied myself as a writer, and as I joked back then, I was tired of losing people after a headline and a paragraph. I really wanted to do more writing, and through a process of abject rejections, uh, sending out a letter to 55 different magazines asking what the just the procedures. What are the procedures to submit a story for your magazine? And I got three responses back. Two uh, were on my own letter saying thanks but no thanks, and one was on a small piece of paper with a person's name on it saying, if you know anything about tires, bicycles, wheels, or cars, call this number. And uh, a week later, I was in the offices with uh, the editor and managing editor of GQ magazine asking me uh, to do a piece on everything anybody ever wanted to know about uh, 10-speed bicycles. Ah, I see. And the uh, piece ran in uh, 1975. I think it was like a March issue. A lot of Schwinn's in there, I guess? Yeah, probably back then. (laughs) Uh, But started in 1974. 
and made the switch when things in advertising slowed down and uh, was given an opportunity to become the associate editor at GQ. My comment when the offer was made was, I know nothing about magazines. And the comment back was, you know how to type and you know how to write. Now, 1974, that makes sense. Uh, that would not happen now. So again, I think in some ways I've been blessed in being in the right place at the right time for whatever my, my career path has been and whatever my life legacy ultimately becomes as well. And I, I took on the mantle of being associate editor and then managing editor, and I was there for eight and a half years. So that's kind of how it all started now. Having said that, to answer your question more directly, I did a piece that appeared in the winter Living It Up issue of GQ magazine, where Pinball was a part of what became a much more expansive piece on, uh, we'll call it interactive entertainment, although it wasn't then, but touting the upcoming new laser disc players. I only had to wait 10 years for that. <laughs> and some of the other you know, groundbreaking technology, some of it that never came to pass and others that did far too ahead of my time. Uh, there were no home video game systems, so my idea was buy an arcade game by this sit-down eight-player, you know, tank game or whatever from Atari. Sure. And part of that, again, were, were pinball machines, one from each of the, the three main companies. Sorry to Chicago Coin, there was no room for an extra fourth, if I remember correctly, and I could be totally wrong, and maybe all four were in there. Anyway, the GQ piece came out. At that point in time, I had already gotten a book publisher interested in wanting to do my pinball book. And my art director on my book was also the art director for the New York Times Arts and Leisure section, which is their major entertainment section in the Sunday newspaper, and worked it out where I did a piece in the New York Times. And that piece ran uh, around Christmas time of 75. The net result from that was my being contacted by the New York State Association for the Coin Machine Industry, asking me if I would be willing to testify on behalf of getting pinball legalized in New York. So the outgrowth was the ability, and again, I was in control of that, of saying, all right, I'm going to assign myself a story to do pinball machines, right? So we're still going back to the fact that it's all motivation. Right. need to find people, meet people, buy a game, which I ultimately wound up doing. But, Very good. I was going to ask that. Um, okay. But then the New York Times piece, book publisher, okay, got to start plotting that out and how I want to deal with it. And now this phone call comes out of the blue. And, and by then, I had already been to my first major trade show. I was starting to make inroads in regard to introducing myself to the industry. By that point in time, I was a fairly accomplished player. So that carried a lot more weight. In addition, um, and it's probably faltering a little bit now, but I have a photographic memory. So the stories that I was being told of the people that I was meeting kind of all sunk in. So it was all of these things, and suddenly I was being introduced as, here's, here's the greatest player you'll ever see, and, and ask him anything about pinball machines. He will tell you. He'll tell you, you know, the day and the week that it was done, and who designed it, and whatever. I don't know if I became a novelty necessarily, but with all of that supporting me was the outreach for me to uh, appear before the city council in New York, which happened in April of 1976, and to discuss the history, what had I uncovered, uh, the fact that I was working on this definitive book detailing and chronicling the industry, and then to talk more specifically about the skill aspects of pinball mm -hmm. and to see if they could overrule what had been on the books uh, for, at that point, 35 years, going back to 1941. Wow. So that's how I found myself 
before the city council. And was it really that calling what alley the ball would go into the plunger <laughs> shot that that changed their minds in addition to uh, the answer? Yeah, it really was. I think that I think that was a turning point. And, and again, I mean, in retrospect, it's and, amazing. And the only reason that I did it, and, and you know, I discussed the, the the geometry of the game, and, and you know, understand no speech back then, the basic pinball sounds, talking about a bank shot, single player Gottlieb game. And it was a question of saying that there's a reason and a rationale as to why this is laid out the way that it is laid out and what these features correspond to mm-hmm. thematically. I forget if I played like one ball and kind of cradled the ball and called my shots and aimed and did things. It was like, I think, very impressive when I think about it. But to me, that was like, I can do this in my sleep. <laughs> right, right. Um, but the key ingredient, and, and whether it was the second ball, I think, I think, in all honesty, it's probably the third ball that I played to, kind of talk my way through it, pointing things out. And before I pulled back the plunger, I remembered encountering, and again, if I really look at my life and kind of uh, detail it and take it apart, everything was meant for a particular reason. Mm-hmm. I mean, even down to what I'm about to tell you. In traveling around to do research for the pinball book and to take pictures and whatever else, James Hamilton, the photographer on the book, and myself were in Chicago on one of the multiple visits that we made. And I was still based in New York, as was James. And we were out in one of the suburbs, a suburb called Skokie. And they had, uh, I think it was called Old Orchard Bowl, but it was a bowling alley. And, was like, and for whatever reason, stopped at the bowling alley. Don't, I mean, could have just driven by. Stopped in the bowling alley. Uh, there's games here. Great. Let's take some pictures. Let me play a little bit. And I went over, and all of the games had no plungers. And I found out later on that the reason for no plungers was that the township of Skokie determined that that was the gambling portion of the pinball machine. So uh, they put in an automatic shooter, which, uh. trust me, back in 1975, did not play like the automatic shooters that we had in the 90s. Right, right. Uh, and I just thought, God, this is just terrible. The balls, you know, kind of go, it, it goes to the same place, mm-hmm. the same lethargic uh, momentum or lack thereof. There's a groove. So before I was ready to pull back the plunger on the third ball in the courtroom, that came back to me. And it was like this, I don't know if you want to call it an epiphany, but... And gentlemen, even to the extent of the plunger, and, you know, we have these little gradient lines, and these lines show, you know, how far back to pull the plunger to send the ball up, and if you take a look at the top, there's five lanes. It's a five-ball game. Um, Each of the lanes correspond to hopefully me being accurate enough to pull back that plunger so I can, by the fifth ball, land in that last lane. And I then proceeded to say, and if I do this exactly right, it will go down that center lane. And I pulled back the plunger, <laughs> looked uh, as the ball went up, hit the rubber stopper, made its arc down, and without having to nudge the game or anything else, the ball found its way straight down <laughs> like a swish in basketball. Nothing but net, straight down the center lane. And that's when the gruff-looking fellow in the picture, for those who have seen it in my book, kind of turned around, all right, that's it. We've seen enough. <laughs> that's fantastic. That's a great So story. that was truly the, the uh, I guess, the turning point in all of it. 
and I think that uh, if I would have thought better of it, I might have said, I'll get close. So, you know, some people have equated it with the Babe Ruth moment of uh, pointing out at Wrigley Field and hitting the home run where he was pointing. I don't know if I could have done two in a row. Sure, sure. And what table was that that you were demonstrating on? There was a Gottlieb uh, single player called Bankshot. And what was your first pin that you ended up getting out of the article? Uh, first one I wound up getting was Buckaroo. Oh, fantastic. Uh, I played Cowpoke in school, which is the out-of-ball version, and I'm hoping I'm remembering correctly, so it's a senior moment. <laughs> and I had also played Hurdy Gurdy, which was Central Park. Those are the two primary games that I really latched on to. Central Park Hurdy Gurdy was the first game I ever turned. Wow. Absolutely loved the game, was good at it after being terrible, and, and trust me, I I started off as one of those idiots who would put his money in, pull back the plunger, and start flipping wildly. <laughs> both at the same uh, time. Uh, yeah, both <laughs> at the same time. Uh, the ball's not even close to being somewhere down the middle of the play field. It's still bouncing around, and I'm just flipping, flipping, flipping madly. And then, you know, there are these little discoveries that happen. Oh, wait. Um, I can wait until the ball gets closer to the flipper. Okay, let me flip madly and wildly now that the ball is closer to the flipper. <laughs> wait a second. If it's only on the right side, I don't have to flip the left flipper. I mean, it was literally, it was the self-teaching process of getting comfortable with the game. And the one game that vexed me was Cowpoke, the roto target in the mm-hmm. center, sure. trying to get the four so I could get as many balls as you could, you know, get it up to 10 and play it. And the turning point for me was a fraternity brother. There was a burger joint on State Street in Madison, Wisconsin. And lunch break, I'm there and I'm watching him have his hamburger. He has the plate on top of the machine, right by the bottom arch. French fries, hamburger, <laughs> soda, and a cigarette. He is cradling the ball. He's playing. He's racking up out of balls, shooting, playing, and he's eating his entire lunch. Had his soda, finished his cigarette, turned to me and said, Here, i got to get back to class. And I've joked about the fact that I drained all 10 balls before he left uh, Burgerville, which I think was the name of the place. I have a feeling that I probably drained them a couple of blocks later because I had not necessarily accomplished the level of expertise that eventually I was going to. And that became one of the principal motivations for me was to be able to play and specifically play Compoke and have my lunch. And I did. But it was one of those games. I got to the point on on Hurdy Gurdy where I could basically turn it every time I played it, which made for a very long playing experience. Uh, Majorettes was out at around the same time. Great single-player game. Subway, which was Crosstown. Uh, You know, all these Gottlieb single-player out-of-ball games. And Cowpook was the one where, you know, I could have those peak moments, and then other times it was like, darn it, I just can't do it. So... When I had the opportunity and, and met up with uh, a distributor in New Jersey that I befriended and said, hi, I want a game, and I know what I want. I want, you know, Central Park, Hurdy Gurdy, if you got it. And he took us back in the warehouse. I was there with James Hamilton. And he said, here. And sitting right next to it was Buckaroo. I see. And I was like, wow. You know what? Let me take the game that caused me the most consternation as a player and not the one that I know I can play blindfolded. And James wound up uh, buying the the Central Park and I wound up buying the Buckaroo. And then you went on to become a pinball wizard, uh, I guess, in the 70s and 80s. 
how long did that last? Were you were you ever number one? I don't know. I don't know everything uh, that I asked the questions. I know that your sons sort of took that mantle, but oh, how, yes, they have. How far did you get? I think back then there really were no competitions. There was a gal by the name of Millie McCarthy in the state of New York who was running tournaments. I didn't believe in playing competitively. Okay. Which may sound strange. I just played for the love of wanting to play the game. And if somebody said, hey, Roger, let's play. Okay, <laughs> let's play, and I want you to do well, and, and I'm going to do as, as well as I can. The turning point came about 1977, 78, when Bally did Super Shooter Tournament. Up to that point in time, yeah, I could basically destroy everybody and anybody that I encountered. I'm sure that, you know, on any given day, on any given machine, you know, somebody could have bested me. But I think that everybody, at least within the industry, because there wasn't this community that existed outside of the industry. So I don't know. I mean, you'd go to a particular location, an arcade or wherever else, and you you didn't have games where you put your initials in. It's just like, all right, sure. you have to beat 8,452. All right, I can do that. So, I mean, for me, that was just the love of wanting to play the game, whatever that game might have been, and squeezing the most out of it that I possibly could. During Super Shooter, and I got involved with it, I guess as a judge, at that time I had uh, switched over to being editor of Video Games Magazine, and we were kind of like one of the sponsors of the event. And I helped line up the games for the finals in Chicago at the Playboy Towers. Okay. And proceeded to watch of Ken Lunsford win this first national tournament. I guess there were about a million players who competed to qualify. And there was a top 20 that were flown into Chicago. Ages 11 to like, I want to say 32 with one gal. Hmm. And national media everywhere. I mean, this was a spectacle beyond belief. And there was a fellow by the name of Joe Grillo who just played exceptionally well throughout that weekend who wound up losing at the end. And I left there thinking, hmm, there's something wrong. Now, before I left leaving there was something wrong, there was a celebrity tournament, and they had Bill Murray there and the late Gilda Radner and Walter Payton, Paul Warfield, I mean, a whole slew of sports celebrities and mm-hmm. other personalities. And, and there was a celebrity tournament why? Well, celebrity tournament to entertain everybody and to have a chance to compete against Roger Sharp. Aha! Uh-huh. And uh, it was Walter Payton and I playing on Power Play, the old Bobby Orr themed ballet game. And we were supposed to play. <laughs> we were supposed to play. I, I think it was best two out of three. And somewhere I probably still have the rip sweater. Uh, because uh, Walter was on his machine and I was on mine. We had set it up, and I told the guys from the competition, I said, all right, this one's for you. Because, I, again, I, I wasn't competitive. I mean, it wasn't as if you know, I wanted to destroy people and sure. play pinball. Sure, sure. If I could beat you by a little bit, that was enough. All right, and, and I'll goof around. I'll make some trick shots, and I'll do some other impossible things just because I enjoy showing off. In this particular instance, it was like, all right, I'll, I'll I'll step up and show you guys. And uh, I think Walter played <laughs> about two and a half games, and I was still somewhere on my first ball. <laughs> uh, maybe the second when Bill Murray came behind me because he was doing the play-by-play. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And and there may be, who knows, there may be some video around that I haven't seen since that time. I'm sure that there are some pictures, but uh, one will find me literally being brought to my knees while I'm still playing <laughs> as Bill Murray takes the collar of my sweater and rips it 
to get me away from the game, and I would not release the flippers. So, effectively, I wound up uh, beating Walter, and I think the, the guys were appreciative. But, fast-forwarding just a bit, I really thought that, and taking nothing away from Ken Lunsford, that he was not the right player to have won in terms of being the most skillful, and the net result was... Steve Epstein, who became a very dear friend, uh, the owner of the world-famous Broadway Arcade in New York City, which, mm. trust me, if there's ever a chance to be able to interview and talk to him, Steve has stories that will amaze you and, and the impact and influence that he had in a major market like New York City after I was able to open the gates to let pinball in is, is really unheralded and unrivaled. And uh, Steve and I became very, very quick and fast friends. Uh, the net result was because of the super shooter experience uh, creating PAPA, Professional Amateur Pinball Association and playing pinball. Now, having said that, let's go back one more step and thank you for indulging me. Um, <laughs> Love it. So, in advance of super shooter, there was a fellow by the name of Joe Schick that was doing a feature for Games Magazine to kind of tie in. Games was also another one of the sponsors, along with, uh, I guess it's now Nissan, but they used to be Datsun and Pioneer and, and a whole slew of other companies. Mm -hmm. And Joe Schick's purpose uh, when he contacted me was he wanted to play me in pinball. And he wanted to play me because the premise of his feature was going to be that he defeated the world's best player. Ah. And we had set it up to be at the Broadway Arcade. 52nd and Broadway in Manhattan on a Sunday. The ground rules were really simple because I wanted it to be as fair as possible. At that time, you had some of the Spanish and Italian companies with games. So Playmatic, Racel, along with Bally, Chicago Coin, I mean, the list kind of goes on and on. But Steve's population of pinballs at the corner store was, uh, I want to say, probably in excess of about 100 machines, all in great functioning order. Mm. So the way I'd set it up, and Joe agreed, was I said, look, I don't want you to think that I have an advantage. I'm going to do little pieces of paper with each manufacturer's name on it. If you pick Bally, you can take any Bally game in this entire place and pick it. If I pick Gottlieb, I take whatever Gottlieb game. I said, All right, that's fair. All we're doing is just picking a manufacturer's name. So uh, I think Joe picked first. He actually came with an entourage. <laughs> and it was Steve there because he opened up a little bit early on that Sunday morning. And, and a dear friend of ours, a uh, fellow by the name of Lionel Martinez, who was uh, a, a film editor, film director, one of the pinball regulars, one of the people who actually helped me as I designed and defined what ultimately became Papa. And the first game started. Joe has his cheering section and whatever else. And it's like, God, this is terrible. And he beat me. Beat me terribly on the wow. first game. And literally, Steve and Lionel grabbed me. We'll be right back. Took me outside. Said, what the hell are you doing? You can beat this guy. And it's like, well, I mean, people are cheering. I mean, God, yeah, I, I don't want to do this. Well, you're going to have to do it. Otherwise, he's writing a piece of that he's beat the world's best player. Right. So it was like, all right, fine. So I went back in and proceeded to absolutely destroy and devastate him. <laughs> And Joe's response, after all was said and done, I mean, was like, I don't know what I'm going to write now. I mean, God, I said, well, <laughs> if you had just asked me, I would have let you write whatever piece you wanted. I said, this has been the worst time of playing pinball I've ever experienced. I mm. really didn't like it. I mean, I wanted to destroy you. 
and I wasn't playing pinball the way I liked to play it. We could have played it friendly. Right. And we became fast friends after that, trust me. But during that, that time, whatever number of hours it was, it was unbearable for me. So I never really wanted to compete on that level. And I held my sons back. You mentioned them before. Mm -hmm. I guess they rank, what, fourth and sixth in the world or third and fifth, whatever it is. And they have become an, an incredibly skillful players and have helped, I guess, revive pinball in a way that nobody had ever expected it was going to be possible with the uh, establishment mm -hmm. of uh, the IFPA, International Flipper Pinball Association, which is now global That's and great. grows by leaps and bounds with the pinball rankings. But I think that, you know, I remember the second Papa that was in, run in New York and, and Steve had me kind of lead it off for the cameras and all the rest of it. And we had a lineup of games and I, I had a particular approach to the setting up of the tournament and how things had to be. And all right, and here's the announcer and, you know, going to lead it off. And, you know, it's kind of like this, this grand martial opening and proceeded to play all eight games and just did terrible. And it's like, <laughs> God, this is just, this is a waste. And asked the players if they minded if I would play in the tournament. Hmm. No, 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 come on, come on, come on. And I, I came close to qualifying, but I also realized, and as Steve pointed out, you wind up choking, Roger. And my sons subsequently told me the same. And it's like, yeah, you know, I'm still not comfortable with it. And Just like I have played competitively. I have won tournaments. I have done well. But there's not the same kind of deliberate, methodical approach to pinball competitively as there is for other people. And more importantly, when I developed as a player, the games were different. The technology was different. Sure. And, and forgetting about the fact that I'm now older and there's not necessarily a senior circuit for pinball as there is in golf. You know, I don't have the reflexes I used to have. I obviously, admittedly, don't have the same level of concentration. Uh, you know, I have my moments where suddenly it's like, wow, uh, you know, to beat the number one player in the world, I guess it was a year ago in the spring at ASI, Keith Owen. Yeah, I mean, I was on my game. I got to show what I used to be able to do, but those times were infrequent. It's kind of like, you know, Arnold Palmer or Jack Nicholas teeing off in a golf tournament. They kind of know what they can do, but they're not going to compete. So that's, I guess, a very long-winded answer to uh, the level and quality of uh, gamesmanship and skill that I have now and what I used to have. Right on. Now, well, let's take that compartment, put it to the side, and let's go into the other compartments. Did you start at working at Williams first, uh, and then Midway, I guess? Is that how that worked? Or I've been around, obviously, the industry going back to 74. Okay. Um, I had designed games for Game Plan. Mm -hmm. I had designed uh, a game for Williams, uh, Barracora, that came out in uh, 1982 couple of years later than it was supposed to. I had actually done some design work for uh, Gottlieb that never made the light of day. So, I mean, I'd kind of been around all of the companies at various points in time from Atari, amazingly, oh, yeah. uh, to uh, Gottlieb and to others. There were very close situations of my going to work within the industry and still a GQ. But, uh, you know, I also wrote other books and, and did other things. So in 1988, I wound up getting a phone call. And I had been in touch with Williams probably for about the previous eight or nine months. I had contacted them because of two things. One, I wanted to create a consumer magazine, and I wanted to do the first issue for free 
and I wanted that premiere issue to go out in pinball machines, figuring that the audience would then get she issues, see that they like it, mm-hmm. and uh, I could launch my little publishing venture. The other thing was approaching Williams with a design and a license for Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles back in 1987. Okay. Before it really kind of hit. Yeah. So when I got a phone call in, I guess, February or March of 1988, I thought the callback was for, okay, we doing my game? <laughs> we doing my license? Are we doing my magazine? What's going on? Instead, they made me an offer to come work for the company as a director of marketing. So I started at Williams in April of 1988 as the director of marketing. As I moved my family from Connecticut, which is where I was then living, to the Chicago area around 4th of July weekend, and I had heard the rumors, there had been rumblings about what I'm going to say, but I really didn't think it was going to happen, and I called from Pennsylvania just to say hi. In Pennsylvania, making progress. (laughs) And uh, Marty Glazman, who was the vice president of uh, marketing and sales, said to me, well, it's true, we have purchased the amusing game assets division, if you will, of uh, Bally. So we have Bally Midway. And I was like, okay, do I turn back or do I keep coming? And he said, you keep coming, need you to be here on such and such a day instead of, so I need to get back sooner. And no, there's no more money, and yes, you have twice the responsibility. (laughs) So by, I think everything was finalized, maybe the mid or latter part of July of 1988, and I'm sure that people can go back through files and things and and be more accurate. But suddenly I was the director of marketing for Williams Valley Midway. And uh, stayed there, I guess, through all of the the changes. You know, I was there at a time where Williams was just re-entering video with Eugene Jarvis heading up a group of folks with the first digitized graphics game called NARC. Sure. Um, and I was there until uh, 2000 and then came back uh, full-time for WMS Gaming slot machines in uh, 2001. Wow. So you So any any and all licensed themes going back to nineteen eighty eight, pinball and or video were ones that I wound up acquiring and negotiating. Working hand in hand with the design teams and everybody else, uh approvals and whatever. Uh, I think I totaled it one time because it had been asked. There's about hundred and eighty projects. Wow. So you were in through um, the good times and the bad times. I guess it was Pretty much a rocky sure. road all all along the way, a big roller coaster, I guess. Well, I mean, let's face it. You know, pinball had its own stages, mm. if you will, of of rebounding. There had been obviously lean times in the early eighties, sure. uh, a resurrection of sort in the the mid eighties, and then you know, kind of gained some momentum. Uh, technology changed a bit. Dot matrix displays, mm. more speech, different style of artwork, a little bit more realistic better music and fidelity, more features that people hadn't experienced before. So the landscape of pinball changed. Being around with video games, which, again, in an interesting way, had had its explosive growth, and I was there for it, in the late 70s, and then the rapid deflation Mm. back around 1981, 1982, when everything dissipated. And we're talking about not only coin-out, but more importantly, the home market. Sure. With the... uh, collapse of Coleco and uh, 
And Magnavox. And Magnavox. And Magnavox was an issue just because of Casey Munchkin and lawsuits, but uh, the the IPF imagination machine, uh, mm. the PC Junior coming out. So on, on that side, the Vic Twenty, Free Commodore. You look at PCs and where they were in their infancy. And again, I was there at that at that opening, on through to the point that you just said, Magnavox, uh, Bally Arcade, twenty six hundred, and the ill fated seventy eight hundred, uh, the four hundred and the eight hundred from Atari. I mean, sure. all of these things. <laughs> and the crossover and the confusion in the marketplace and, and product that should never have been developed from a software standpoint. So fast forward to, you know, 1988 and dark, and now it's a brave new world. Mm. There are things that are going to be happening and midway games such as Arch Rivals from mm. Brian and Jeff at Game Refuge and things such as Smash TV and then the very first licensed video product, NBA Jam, on through to you know, 1992, the breakthrough with Mortal Kombat, mm -hmm. and uh, what we were able to turn that into when the guys first approached me, John Tobias and Ed Boone, John's idea was he wanted to get Jean-Claude Van Damme, <laughs> and it would be a Jean-Claude Van Damme game. And when I couldn't get that for them, we sat down and I said, well, why don't we just develop our own mythology, create characters, and obviously they created some fabulous characters, and I need a backstory. Yeah. Because I was doing the PR as well. Give me a, who are these people? Do I care about them? Give me a history. And John had always wanted to do a comic book, so I was like, all right, give me a screen on the game. Ed was nice enough to open up a PO box. My assistant, Alice Metro, and, and her sister, Jeanette, were great to support it. And I did a comic book. Uh, the back page, because I had an extra page, it was like, all right, let's do t shirts and reached out to a premium guy that I knew. So the very first derivative product, if you will, for Mortal Kombat was a comic book. And then the rest of it kind of just happened, again, piece by piece, step by step, with the two feature films, 220 licensed companies on board, and all books. doing Mortal Kombat stuff and generating, what, $2 billion yeah. in one year in revenue with a live tour, a live action series, an animated series. This kind of goes on and on, and the rest, as they say, is history. When one looks at uh, the evolution of Mortal Kombat. So, yes, I was there across the board, although many people think of me primarily for pinball. I'd like to think that uh, I had as much, if not more, of an influence when it comes to uh, to video games and, and what wound up happening. I take it that you were still there for Pinball 2000? Uh, most definitely. What was your involvement with that, if any? Well, I think the original brainstorming sessions uh, and talking about the direction that we would consider taking and, and looking at different approaches. Uh, I kind of knew that uh, Pat Lawler and George Gomez were off-site working on something, but they mm -hmm. were keeping it secret. I and see. It was interesting. I guess I was the first person that Pat came and got when they brought it in under a, a drape. And uh, wow. George and uh, Pat were setting it up to show it to uh, upper management and other folks. and Plugged it in, pulled away the cape, looked at it, and knew instantaneously what they had done, and I was like, oh, this is awesome. Yep, yeah. I got it. So the hollow pin worked for me, mm -hmm. because I remembered, you know, the old pinball games that were done before with, you know, reflective surface. Right, right. Looking at it, I thought it was marvelous. thought it was inventive, uh, and Larry DeMar and, you know, the other troops really kind of took everything to heart and to task to come up with the best solution for the operator. Is this going to be kiddable? Yes. 
mm-hmm. is going to be accessible to do maintenance even if the person doesn't want access for that technician to get to the cash box. Yes, we can do that. I mean, there was like this hit list of things, and the guys attacked and solved all of them so that, you know, look, it's a mechanical device. Still at all. Uh, something is going to happen at some point in time. Well, how do you get in there to change a light bulb? Most locations, the reason that the games stay down or aren't fixed is that there's not anybody to maintain them, and the person that comes around is really coming around doing collections. And nobody wants to open up the front because you open up the front and the cash box is exposed. Mm -hmm. So, again, something as remedial as that was all considered. And, uh, yeah, I was there. Uh, Worked on all the uh, promotion for it. Uh, I worked on all the PR. Do you have any favorite mechanicals uh, stepping out of the the realm? You said that you first got interested in the the baseball machines. Do any other mechanicals? I'm a big fan of mechanicals. I especially like the helicopter. Okay. (laughs) And I know Uh that that we had George Gomez on a previous episode, and he talked about that he made a revamp of that helicopter game with a more modern desert storm type of feel to it. Yep. Any other type of mechanicals really pop out at you that you remember? Yeah, as a matter of fact, I mean, I, I remember, uh, I think it was a rabbit and a bear game where they were on a track in the back and it, the same kind of platform format as the baseball games. Ball would come out from, you know, a center flap and you would try to time, it wasn't a flipper, you'd try to time your bat so you could hit the rabbit or the bear and you needed to finish all those off so you could keep on playing. I absolutely loved that game. Yeah. Uh, there were some others with God. I know that somebody's still making them. I want to say that there were balls that seemed like they were just flying in space. You'd press a button, I think it was air or whatever. Oh, yeah, the air. Rub, rubber balls. Yeah, yeah. And then at the appropriate time, the air would stop and the balls would fall down onto this grid. And if you could line up two or three or whatever else, that's how you, you know, won a prize or wow. was. Yeah, I forgot about that one. Games like that, yeah. Remember the life size, <laughs> the life size mannequin age. Come on, partner. Oh yeah, I remember that one. Uh, Broadway Arcade had one. Sure. Uh, yeah, I mean, any any and all of those. I mean, the, the, again, uh, probably personal favorites would have been the Man Run Unit when Mark Ritchie decided to do what eventually became Slugfest. Hmm. I was all on board, and I wound up asking if there was some way we could do it as a card dispenser. So we worked out that technology. And I tied us in with Tops so that it became, in quotes, a redemption game. Gotcha. And it was actually the first machine that came from Williams Valley Midway with a dot matrix display. Wow. Oh, yeah, uh, right, right. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, so, I mean, those are some of my favorites that kind of come instantly to mind. Obviously, there seems to be a running thread as I think about my answer to you that they have balls <laughs> <laughs> involved. Uh-huh. Um but uh, gun games are always difficult for me. I, I love them, but I didn't have the depth perception, so I would be the idiot to be standing behind the gun, <laughs> trying to line up the sight as gotcha. opposed to doing it the right way. Sure. Uh, so I couldn't do it from my right or left eye because just I just couldn't. But that's something I always wanted to do. But games like Seawolf and others, the original one, mm-hmm. with a periscope where I could have both eyes. Right. Yes. Those, those were cool as heck. Now, I spoke to George a little bit about this, and he didn't really have any knowledge about it, but you being part of the marketing team, maybe maybe you were and especially involved with licensings. Now, did you know about George Lucas's conspiracy to destroy pinball? 
No. Okay. You tell. Yes. George, I mean, the George Lucas, Lucas uh, story that I can say is that when I was able to secure the rights for episode one, and, and we had worked with with Lucas before, mm-hmm. uh, when we decided, and we made the choice, we had the choice of either doing Star Wars or doing Indiana Jones. And uh, I thought that Indiana Jones was a bit more fertile. Liked it. It had nothing against Star Wars, but... Sure. And uh, the decision was made to do that, and it was an incredible, you know, uh, experience uh, to go out to the ranch and then to work with everybody. And I, I think that that result uh, to this day is uh, a testament to uh, some of the best collaborative work that uh, you know Williams did in, in pinball. I think Indiana Jones is a great game. It has some flaws, but forgetting about that. And I think that. Uh, what was fascinating was reaching back out to them because we did have a new platform. There was going to be video. And I remember calling and talking to them and saying, okay, I cannot tell you what it is that we're doing, but I'm going to be asking <laughs> you for things that you're going to say, huh? Why do you need that? Mm-hmm. And I said, at an appropriate time, I will reveal to you why. And the appropriate time came, and we did reveal, and we got things earlier than anybody else. We got things earlier than Lucas Arts did for their video game hmm. that they were doing. Wire mesh forms and all the rest of it for some of the characters, working with some of the toy companies off of their original molds. I mean, the list kind of goes on and on. Because of that, and because we kind of knew everything, all the characters and all the rest of it, we had to be quarantined. Hmm. And the quarantine, which may be a reference to George Lucas wanting to destroy pinball, if people want to view it that way, I don't. Maybe it's another story or another myth uh, or another urban legend. John Papaduke and Cameron and Duncan and uh, the rest of the group were put behind locked doors. Got to work in a vacuum with all of the assets that I was gathering for them from Lucas and from the other licensing partners that nobody else could see. We had this literally sign away our lives. Uh, that if anything came about because of our recklessness, because we've revealed anything, that they would come after us and sue us. Sure, sure. Uh, so I think what wound up happening, and I know that Pinball Expo and some others, uh, places, I know that John has talked about it, and, and he doesn't come out too often to, to talk to people, but I think that Cameron has mentioned it, I know Duncan has, I'm sure that George has, and others. One of the things that really hurt that project was the fact that there wasn't that interactivity between the principal design team and the rest of the folks. Mm. However people took whatever their egos were, whatever their designs were, everybody by and large is fair game to get a new one ripped, or at least for whatever the constructive criticism was. So whether it was Dennis Nordman, John Trudeau, John Papadou, Pat Lawler, Steve Ritchie, Mark Ritchie, Ward Pemberton, I mean, the list goes on and on, and if I've missed anybody, my apologies, but everybody's office was open, and you kind of walked through, and came around, and looked, and was like, eh, all right, I'm not really liking it, but, <laughs> or, you know, I mean, there was that kind of, and trust me, I'm sure that it was a lot more arched than what I just did. Uh, between everybody and behind the closed doors it was limited to whatever the five or six principal people were and it was too far gone i mean i have been on record and i think that john knows this and i harbor no resentment or ill will toward john i think that he's incredibly talented did great work with theater of magic uh did great work at least with the geometry of world cup soccer and i think that john hopefully would be the first one to absolutely acknowledge the fact that the game became the game that it 
became because of what Larry DeMar did with the rule set and the programming. Now, having said all of that, and Circus Voltaire, I think, was you know, a wonderful game. Yeah, too, great. Mm-hmm. In terms of layout and just balance. Sure. Uh, episode one was terrible. Hated it. Well, it wasn't what it should have been. It should have been designed and developed from the ground up, and it wasn't because John was adamant about keeping what he had worked on for his play field. And I don't think that it ever really did what it might have done, a la what George did so mm-hmm. capably with Revenge from Mars. Sure. So I've never been a big fan of episode one. Forgetting about Jar Jar and all of that stuff. <laughs> Uh, I always thought that uh, we we had an obligation to do something better, and we didn't deliver on it. Whether or not there's something as a, as an outgrowth from that of George Lucas, you know, having some impact on destroying pinball. Well, I know that as as I, I know that's what it was, and that's what I, that's the story I'm going to stick with. <laughs> but let's talk about games that Steve. Like I said, Steve was on earlier in the show. He crapped on some of my favorite most. Beloved pins and other ones he agreed with me were fantastic. But, you know, I have my reasons for liking certain pins. The ones that particularly crept in were WWF Royal Rumble. He wasn't very familiar with Royal Guard, and who would be? It's kind of obscure, but. What, Royal Rumble? Uh, Royal Rumble, yeah, he crapped on that one. Oh, no, well. The only crappy part was the fact that you had too many ramps, too many areas, wasn't logically laid out in the top play field you could play forever. But you couldn't get access to it all the time. Um, I mean, the long shot on the left to get you back up to the top or to feed over on the left side, it was okay. It just it was a tough, balanced, wide body sure. uh, that had too many hidden areas, especially in the right side underneath the upper little play field. But my memory is kind of sketchy, other than the fact that the center was a decent shot that was kind of a ripoff of what we had done on Jokers and uh, ultimately what we had done on Police Force. Does that kind of capture a little bit of the layout? Well, that's what I tried to tell him, but, oh, okay. you know, he was <laughs> exactly, was not so many words. I'm just trying to do it off the top of my head. I have I mean, no reference in front of me here. Sure. I mean, what I said was, oh, I liked it. The guys jumped up and down, uh, and there's a lot of voice. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that it was some fun stuff. It was fun. Exactly. Uh, but, yeah, it's, it's a fun uh, machine. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't as memorable as it might have been, and we actually turned down the license. I see. There was no interest in it. Okay, very good. Good to know. And I also brought up Royal Guard to him, which, like I said... Oh, wow. Great game. And, you know, this is just... This, that's a pretty obscure machine. I'm sure you agree. But that was a game that uh, was close to my heart, mostly for nostalgic reasons. And I also liked King Cool. Now, you probably will poop on that. King Cool? Yeah, King Cool was good. Okay, he, he hated the uh, backwards uh, flipper thing happening there, the the quad flips or whatever. Nah, I, I mean, you got to get over that. He just think of it in the time frame of what it was when it was being done. And and I think that the issue with a lot of people in, in this day and age when, when they come down hard on a particular game is that think back within the context of what was out there and what was trying to be done. And with you know things like King Cool and at that time, what was it, Jungle and some of the others that were these kind of big, loopy, lots of things happening on the sides and the center kind of being closed off. Yeah, I mean, that was just the nature of what design was. What did you think of Hercules? Oh, you're talking about Bigfoot? Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, when it when it got to my Woolworths or uh, two guys, it was rechristened Hercules, I guess. Right. No, no, I understand. And, and uh, Valley didn't manufacture it. I think that it was a great novelty as, as a pinball. 
you know. That's so good. The uh, well, interestingly, I mean, the game played like a pinball. A little bit sluggish yeah. using pool balls, obviously. Sure, but sure. The power stroke on the flippers and and how things were lined up for the spinner and the the loop around in the center and some of the other stuff uh, in, in terms of just basic geometry was all there. Just cumbersome. Yeah. I think of it as a carnival piece. Sure. And back then you could do it. It's almost like asking me, what do I think of Orbiter 1? <laughs> and thinking that that was a pinball or a Varkon. You know, those were times where people were just kind of, you know... Experimenting. <laughs> grabbing at straws. Yeah. Wondering, oh, what's it going to take? Now, I've seen some of the, the uh, archive footage of you and your sons. I see an Evil Knievel machine in the background there. And I told Steve I'd love to get his retelling of, of the Evil Knievel machine. What do you think about that that pin? Um, I, th- I think that it would be great. I think that the more appropriate people to talk to about it would be Greg Kamick and Jim Patla because I know that they were kind of working on that way back when. Mm. I'm assuming that, and I don't know it off the top of my head, had to be either Paul Ferris or Greg Ferris who worked on the art um, and and to get a sense of what that was because uh, one of the things that I used to rock my sons to sleep with, Joshua and Zachary, would be turning on Evil Knievel and watching the the light trace of uh, Evil making the jump at the top part of the back glass. Wow. And I'd turn on the games, and the lights would be there. And that's how I used to rock them to sleep when we were living in a loft in uh, New York City when they were first born. Can I get in a time machine and come back and be your son as well, please? My comment to my sons has been, and, and again, I guess we've kind of covered a little bit of it, the involvement and the exposure that I had to, you know, to pinball, to video games, to board games for that matter, mm-hmm. handhelds in the old Mattel days and Coleco days and, and on and on. And the boys have been surrounded by that their entire lives. And I, I used to say when they were younger that someday I hope that they'll appreciate that they were lucky enough to grow up with a father who was just a big kid at heart who had all of these games sure. and toys. So. That's great stuff. I also asked Steve, what about the people out there? Like most of our listeners are, you know, they're video gamers. They play pinball machines, but very few of us own pinball machines, myself included. I would love to, but things never just lined up for me and never got the right table. Uh, what would you suggest? Uh, what's a great place to start? What are some of your favorite tables? Oh, for pinball machines? I mm-hmm. thought you were asking me what some of my favorite video games were. Um, I've been asked the question over the years. You know, I want to get a pinball machine. What should I get? Mm-hmm. And I think that it's becoming more difficult to give the answer that I used to give, but I will try it anyway, which is try to find some places near where you might reside and go out and play pinball. Mm-hmm. Get a feel for not necessarily the specific game you're playing, but for features. Mm-hmm. Wow, I really like a game that has multiple flippers. Oh, I like a game that has multiball. Oh, I definitely like a game that has a ramp. I mean, start looking at what I would call the core playfield components. And, and if you can, start looking at why you like them and where you like them. God, you know, I like the ramp when it's on the right side, not on the left. Mm-hmm. I mean, it can be something as basic as that. Sure. And then there are any number of resellers and restorers that exist literally almost everywhere. Distributors in the yellow pages, uh, vending machines or whatever. I guess the point I was going to say is that you want to go out and sample games, and then what you want to do is you want to be able to go out and either have identified a particular machine. I played this at the local bowling alley. I really want this. I like this. Now, the, the one caveat from personal experience, 
that I recounted before is don't necessarily play the game that you know that you can play incredibly well because the novelty is going to wear off playing it for free and having it there every single day. Gotcha. Play something where there's a challenge, where it's not going to take you 12 hours to play one game, the family waiting for dinner or to <laughs> leave somewhere, whatever the case might be, because there isn't infinite time typically. The second game choice will be a little bit different. <laughs> and then the third and the fourth, I mean, as the case might be in, in terms of available space. But I think that that's, that's how I would direct somebody unless they automatically said, I want Elvira Scared Stiff. <laughs> and there are people that want to have Batman. Sure, sure. Oh, okay. Fair enough. Now go out and find a Batman. Now, if it is for people who have not been totally ingrained in the world of pinball, you know, make sure you look under the hood. It's like buying a used car. Mm-hmm. Make sure there's no burn marks anywhere. Everything's kind of clean. You can get a sense, has it been out in vocation or is it privately owned? Go through all the, the Q&As that you would just to know that you are buying what you are buying and ask friends and associates. Go online. I know that the news groups exist. Go to IFPA mm-hmm. as a website and, and ask, you know, I've encountered such and such a game. They want X amount of dollars for it. Looks like it's in decent shape. What do you think? Go out and ask people. I was lucky when I got my buckaroo. I was working with a distributor who was obviously going to, or maybe not obviously, but he was going to deliver it from New Jersey to my studio apartment in New York. They did not do any repair work for me, but they put me in touch with Irving Dinnerman, who became my pinball doctor. Gotcha. A wonderful person who is actually the father of Bobby Dinnerman. And for those in the world of video games, Bobby Dinnerman was one of the fellows who worked on Tron for uh, Bally Midway as a video game. And Irving would make his trek in, and my collection grew from Buckaroo to then Jack in the Box and Stingray and Evil Knievel, and the list kind of goes on and on. But the things that I could not repair myself mechanically, he would come in and uh, do the work for me. Right on. So you want to make sure that you can get somebody who can do some care for your game and then take care of it. Uh, something that I wish I did more with my games, but you know. It's not so bad to actually take the glass off and clean the play field, follow all the appropriate instructions of you know how to do what you're doing. Don't take soap and water to it. And uh, you know, just just keep it all nice and happy. Right on. What are you involved with now? What's going you're still in the business, right? And I'm still in the business. I do licensing for WMS Gaming, which uh, now is in the world of slot machines. Oh, okay, gotcha, gotcha. So were you involved with the Creature of the Black Lagoon? Uh, Creature in Black Lagoon, pinball, yes. Uh, slot machine, no. That was from IGT. Uh, but, uh, themes such as Monopoly. Okay. Oh, Oz, good. Top Gun, Star Trek. Um, oh, great. The list kind of goes on and on. Well, we just got uh, Sands that open up, and in, in, we're in the Lehigh Valley here. That's where I'm broadcasting from, so I okay. just had a Sands open up there. I'm going to have to go, go look at what's new in the licensed uh, slot machine area. Cause it's gotcha. All, it's all well, I think there. we have some exciting things from WMS that hopefully people are enjoying. Very good. Hey, uh, do you own a capacitance electronic disc player? Um The CED I, player? I, I know. I'm, I was just trying to think. <laughs> I, I think that I... I probably do. If not, I'm sure that Josh and Zach can help me. (laughs) Well, the only other person I know that I think I've had on this show that has a CED player, Roger Sharp, thank you very much for being part of We Talk Games. I enjoyed it. Thank you. And uh, to you and your listeners, have a great time playing games. Right on. Be well. 
Wow, Roger Sharp, Roger Sharp. Yeah, we're going to get Roger back on here again. We didn't even really delve into his love of video games at all because he's just involved in so much. Hey, just go to International Flipper Pinball Association, IFPAPinball.com, to find out more about that organization and get yourself some pinball, Lane. Keith, let's get Kyle on the line. All right, satellite of integrity, Kyle Von Kubik. Now, Kyle... Pinball-centric, yeah. pinball-related We Talk Games this episode. Kyle, what pinball tables have you been playing lately? Wait. Pinball? Yeah. Pinball-centric, the 100% pinball-centric We Talk Games episode 13. Monumental episode. Pinball only. Uh, my email said we were doing bad video games based off of bad movies. No, 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 no. We, we, we moved that to the 15th episode. I've been playing Bay Bay Kids <laughs> on Super Nintendo for the uh, last five weeks. Good Lord. All right, let's just start the council. Let's get uh, John on here. Get him on the line, Keith. John, you there? I am. All right, very good. I'm on the line. All right, let's let's start this council. Obviously, Kyle has no idea what we're doing this episode. So, Kyle got sent the wrong email. Well, you know what happened there? Baby's kids <laughs> for the last five weeks. Thank you. You got to get on the fax train, Kyle. That's where Wacky Fickley send her stuff. Fax. I think I think Stinky sent me that email. It's Everything was misspelled wrong. <laughs> misspelled wrong. That yeah, means it was spelled right. Negative. That means it was spelled right. <laughs> Very good. Perfect grammar. Hey, speaking of babies, kids, <laughs> the let's best go, this in English. Let's go right overseas to the babyest of us all. I think Johnny Capcom. Johnny Capcom. Now you know uh, we we talked about this before. We all have a little bit of something different to bring to this month's council. And by the way, the show stacked. If you didn't know, so we already had uh, Steve Ritchie, Roger Sharp on here. So how are we going to follow that up? Well, we're not, but <laughs> we shall try with uh, with relating. Our memories, our knowledge, our happy, fun times, poop pants, babies, kids on a roller coaster. Now, do yeah. you do the roller coaster in the babies, kids game? Yes. You yes. must. Well, there, I mean, there's a roller coaster there. Very good. I couldn't get past the first level, I'm going to be honest. <laughs> very good. Soccer kid. I don't know why that came up, but uh, <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. Remember but, the roller coaster in that Batman game? Batman and Robin. Yeah, oh, didn't we talk about that? Yeah, it's all. I like that level because it's the hardest thing you can ever get through on that system, nearly. Because uh, it's there's a trick that you can use to get through the level pretty easily, though. It's called save states. <laughs> and uh, thanks, man. You know, antenna. Oh yeah, totally. I see. I see. Pinball. Now, <laughs> right, pinball. <laughs> pinball babies, kids, and uh, Batman roller coasters. Johnny Capcom, you took a little bit different approach to the memo that went out that we were supposed to try to do some stuff that was pinball centric and our, well, you know, it could be arcade games, it could be pinball games, it could be video pins. So you actually want to talk about a couple of physical tables and also perhaps something that's close to my heart, which I talked about with uh, Steve Ritchie. I talked about in the past with some of our past guests, and that is the novelty games, which, uh, which I love and I'm in oh, love definitely. with. So why not go ahead and uh, bring to the table what you got there? Okay, well, jump in if you've uh, played these any of these, but uh, I just want to talk about some of my favorites. Is it going to be pool? And, uh, 
No, not pool. Oh, okay, very good. Hey, when are we going to do I'm the not. pool-centric We Talk Games? Next Tuesday from Never. Okay, Lunar Pool. That's my that's my toss into the bucket. Okay, I like the one, the SNK pool. I think it was where you get, like, strippers to, like, take your 8-bit clothes off. Gotcha. Nice. But uh, anyway, the first game I'm going to tell you is about, and I don't know if you've ever played it, it was actually quite a timely release, because as you know, a lot of IPs were, you know, were released in pinball form, you know, uh, when Street Fighter hit it big, we got the Street Fighter pinball table, Mm -hmm. you know, Pac-Man was on pinball, obviously baby Pac-Man, and this game that I was playing was, uh, was a very timely release, just like that, you know. Uh, almost like the Rocky Tree pinball machine, which was in Rocky Tree before, <laughs> you know. But uh, this uh, game was, I mean, it it was released in 1997, and it was uh, based on the big summer hit in 1997. You know, Caddyshack. Oh, of course. Yeah, uh, the seven. Start, yeah, the big hit in 1997, <laughs> except that it wasn't. It was 17 years late, and this game was called uh, No Good Golfers. It was so, based on Caddyshack oh. 3. Was it? No, no, it wasn't. But this game was a it was a Caddyshack game. I mean, like you had golfers. The only thing that was missing was Bill Murray. Wow, it was actually a really fun game to play because the golfers did pull the gimmicks on you and whatever. But you could actually there was these annoying little golfers on the table, and you could smack them with the ball. Oh, okay. And like then their faces turn around and have like a heart face. Did it have Ted Knight in it? I believe so. It had a guy that looked like Ted Knight, right? And oh, he, totally. And he had uh, two teenage daughters that lived next to a guy that was flamboyant, but still liked women. Well, the, the game wasn't actually Caddyshack. It was just a cat. It was definitely inspired by Caddyshack. Right. Right, John? Yeah. yeah. I mean, again, the hot film in 1997. I'm all right. The subtitle of it was called Caddyshed. Sorry, I ruined that for you. That was a good one. I got confused. I thought this actually was a Caddyshack machine because I was uh, on YouTube and this guy had converted one to have uh, like a Caddyshack marquee. Oh, I just remember when it was. I got this. I got to play this. It was released in 1997, but I got to play it in like 2000. And um, I mean, I knew what Caddyshack was, but like. I just remember standing there in the arcade going, how are kids supposed to know what this is based on, you know? Well, Caddyshack was, was a staple in Irish cinema, right? Uh, no. Well, <laughs> I think you're you're uh, you're mixing up your films there, you know. The Never Ending Story was the... Uh, <laughs> but uh, we, did, we didn't we did get a Never Ending Story table, but uh, either of you guys ever play this uh, No Good Gophers game? Uh, no. No, I never well, played that. Well, if you are a fan of Caddyshack or Caddyshack 2... Shacking up, whatever it's called, go play it. Very it's, good. It's, it is actually quite fun, but you know you're going to be lost if you're like me. As uh, another game, I don't know if Fighter Use ever played it called Theater of Magic. Well, Roger Sharp just mentioned Theater of Magic. Of course, you weren't on to hear that, but that's what he mentioned. And I, I, uh, I've never played Theater of Magic. I have played Circus Voltaire, which is quite similar, but I don't recall playing Theater of Magic. Theater of Magic was awesome because it was a standard table. But uh, there was a moment in us where uh, you'd hit the thing, and there was like a magnet embedded in the board. Sure. Mm-hmm. And it would freeze the ball solid. Mm-hmm. And I just remember as a kid just being like, look, it's defying physics. Because <laughs> it was on a really steep part of the board. Uh-huh. And, like the ball just wouldn't move. 
Oh yeah, yeah. yeah, that was cool. Yeah, Magna Lock was uh, a couple uh, using a lot of uh, tables, including Circus Voltaire. I'm pretty sure. Well, this is probably similar. This is from Bali, like in 1994, I believe. Oh, okay. It was cool. I remember I had like a these weird like Virtual Boy gimmicks on the screen that you could play as well. You know, on the score screen. Sure, sure. I uh, watched the trailer for the uh, Tilt movie that you both have seen because it's impossible to see the full film pretty much where I am at the moment because you can't get it on iTunes. And oh, really? Sure. No. That for some reason, movies aren't for sale on iTunes. Oh. But, uh, I, I saw one had like a holographic alien. Yes. And uh, I was like, did I play that? Was that? Did I play that a couple of years ago? I didn't. I played one with crappy rubber aliens and I called Attack from Mars. Attack from Mars, a great Brian Eddie pinball machine that inspired like uh, George Gomez. We had him on a show. A big inspiration for a lot of people. That's not a crappy game. That's a great game. Uh, it's the it's the crappy aliens that I'm talking about. Oh, okay, gotcha. The table itself. I loved playing. Yeah, that's one of the that's one of the classic tables, and uh, that's what the the one you saw was based off of. The exactly. Attack from Mars. The the Pinball 2000 version was Revenge from Mars, yep. where they used the new new but old technology to project images onto the play field and then have the ball interact with them. And I did get to play that, and that game was fantastic. R- very easy, but a lot of fun. And you also got to play the other Pinball 2000 game, the one that yes. kin- killed Pinball. Yeah, Star Wars Episode One: The Death of Pinball. Gotcha. Tagline. <laughs> I was going to say, I loved it because I thought it was like Super Space Invaders 91, the pinball game, because there's a, a gimmick with cows, I believe. To, to yes. stop it, you know, and I mean, uh, there was so much charm in those little rubber aliens, the way they bounced around. <laughs> but I remember my memories got, you know, mixed up, and I was like, did I play that hologram one? No, I didn't. <laughs> the hologram one actually had a couple of the rubber aliens in there, too. Oh, cool. They would bounce up and down like they did in the original table. Well, I. That was like that was the last pinball game I remember playing. The Attack from Mars that really stood out to me. Yeah, it was a great, but, great, great table. As far as uh, the novelty games, I, was gambling a big thing in arcades back? You know, in, in America, back when arcades were around. Well, gambling was legal, so no. <laughs> but uh, you oh, could yeah. get tickets. Yeah, you could get tickets mostly on skee ball. Um, there, there were always a couple other novelty games that you could get tickets out of. Well, pre-1970, there were pinball machines that would do payouts. Sure. And that that was a big deal, and that's why pinball was banned in Chicago and New York. Exactly, and we we talked about that earlier with the the two pros. So originally, yeah, I guess they were kind of gambling machines, but yeah, Roger Sharp proved that pinball was less about odds and probability and more about skill. Exactly. They had to do it in court, didn't you? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We ran that down. Okay. I just wanted to figure out if, like, you could gamble as children in arcades because I certainly could. And uh, uh-huh. there was a horse racing game I used to play when I was a kid. It was like a little me- mechanical horse game, but you bet money and you won money. And uh, it was it was literally gambling because I'd get my arcade allowance and go in and see if I could double or triple it, <laughs> or I just end up, you know, wow. with nothing. Uh-huh. That's why pinball was banned initially, right there. <laughs> Another uh, weird one I played, and I can't remember the name of it, it was this weird video quiz game, and it was like a Japanese kind of looking thing, and I was like, oh, that looks kind of cool. This is not too long ago, like seven, eight years ago. Hmm. 
And um, I went in, and I was a teenager at the time, and I was playing through, and I did really and uh, I got the high score and uh, I guess it was like one of the first couple of days uh, that this thing had been in because I didn't do amazing but I got a good score and as I was putting my name into the uh, top of the high score table I was treated to quite a lot of pornography nice ah. <laughs> and, uh, I was just kind of like okay <laughs> you know? I kind of turned around and walked away and was were there tentacles there wasn't. It was actually. Oh, so it can't be Japanese then. Uh, no, I, I can't tell you, but there was a lot of boob going on. Gotcha. And I was just like, as a teenage male, you know, I mean, there was no greater prize. <laughs> but, uh, and the last one I want to talk about is a game I hate. And I, I don't know if you ever played it. It was this Uncle Fester game where you oh, shock yourself. Love yes. it. I hated it. And I, 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 if I could actually shoot. Could shoot that one, but my granny was a big slot player, and uh, I'd be standing like with her, and she always sat near that thing, so the Adams Family music would play, mm-hmm. and I just think about hopefully like breaking it so it would actually electrocute me to death instead of having to listen to the crappy music over again. Oh, so you never, you didn't actually play it, you just listened to the music. Oh, I did, okay. and I didn't like the, the game either. So much no. a game as torturing yourself. <laughs> Yeah, I, Maybe know, the hate had rotted into me by then when I tried it, but I can't remember. I think that this came out at a time where you really couldn't send a shock through somebody, you know? No, it was like oh, no, mid-90s late. when the movies came out. Right, right. So I think so. It, I think the consensus is it was all simulated, but it was done very well. But it was definitely based on older uh, novelties like this where you actually would, would get some sort of shock sent through you. And I think... Between John Seller and earlier this episode, and even George Gomez, who who made that that great uh, helicopter um, novelty game remake, I think I've pretty much exhausted my love for novelty titles. I, I can't think of any more off the top of my head that I haven't already mentioned. How about you, Kyle? Well, I can remember two uh, that I loved okay. playing back in the day, but I can't remember their names. There was one that was actually like... Um, a physical, mechanical version of Space Invaders, where there, I believe, six of these plastic chomping aliens would come down this track towards you, and you'd use a light gun to shoot them back. And oh, a light gun. Okay. I believe it was a light gun. I remember one where you had, like, a ball or something, and it was sort of like Space Invaders. No, it but... definitely wasn't a ball. Okay. You actually had a gun, and you'd have to shoot the different tracks to have these aliens back up, and then when you hit them, they'd make a noise, and, you know, their eyes would flash, and they'd fall backward. Gotcha. Um... Like I said, a very mechanical, analog version of Space Invaders. And then as you progress through the game, they would get faster and faster. And you could only shoot one at a time, so you had to pace yourself out well. It was a lot of fun. You, you won tickets. It was a lot like a whack-a-mole type game, only it was instead of hitting the guys down, you're actually hitting them back. Right. A lot of fun. And then another one with a light gun again was this, I guess it was like a, a case, like a cabinet almost, but it was a diorama of this essentially what it was was a dollhouse but it was done up like a haunted house and much like pinball 2000 used a monitor to project images onto the play field this game projected images into this diorama of a haunted house and these ghosts would pop i think it, oh. it was ghoul buster it was very close to ghostbusters i know that okay. like the title 
And, it reminds um, me sort of like a killer shark, the mechanical one. But yeah, uh, maybe it, it was definitely aping off Ghostbusters. It might have even come out around the same time the movies did. And you'd shoot these cartoon-looking ghosts. It, you know, it might have even been a laserdisc type of game. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and you'd shoot these cartoon-looking ghosts, and then they disappear and things would happen in the diorama like the bed would shake or the closet door would creep open and it would give tells to let you know when the ghost was going to appear there oh man this is really coming back to me now so like you'd see the steps like flicker Uh like they were moving like someone was walking down them and then the ghost would appear in the next room so it would tell you like okay he's walking down there and you could only shoot the ghost when they appeared it was really, really cool, but the, I think the last time I played it, I was like eight or nine, right, so right. I don't remember the names of either of those two machines, but they were a blast. Hey! What's up? Hello. Hey, yeah, I was listening, you know? I was, well, I was reading Time Magazine, and uh, <laughs> but then I was uh, like thumbing through, and then I, then I heard yeah. about these games. That's the contest for next month. Well, uh, what is, to name the novelty games, I just did one of them, or both? Both! Wow, that's a tough contest. Name both Ghoul, Busters, and uh, Stinky Attack. Space okay. Space Attacks. Name I those. I think you won already. I, <laughs> I think you've just won the contest, Stinky. Yeah. And uh, you name those, you send your entries to contest at wetalkgames.com, and you win the laminated poster of the 1980s reproductions of the We Talk Games poster. Wow. That's for sale. And laminated. And mounted. And mounted. I will mount it. <laughs> you <laughs> <laughs> Can I enter the contest like right now? Yes. It is this Donkey Kong for ColecoVision. Oh I'm sorry, that's, that's close. A no. uh, that's me dumb. That's close. I think it's is called it Kiss Psycho Circus. No, it's called Terminator Two. I, you oh. know what? I think Stinky just won. Okay, I gotta go back. I gotta read. Stinky's contest of the month strikes again. Well, it's about time that he had a new contest. Yeah. All right, very good. That's that's great to have a new contest and everything else. Kyle, what do you got for the council this uh, month? Well, I was thinking about pinball, and I was thinking of some of the classic franchises from the home console. And I was thinking about the transition between the two. And I am going to start off talking about, I guess, bridge the gap from the physical kinetic sculptures of the tables of pinball to the video pinball because they kind of are two different things Mm -hmm. and i was thinking a lot about how sonic and mario and other franchises did a little bit of transition into pinball and how well they fared okay and the first two of course you think of are mario and sonic because they're you know icons and classic platformers and home video game consoles right and i actually played a little bit of sonic spinball Okay. And uh, I played a little bit of Mario Pinball Land. Okay. And I got to say, Mario uh, did a little bit better. <laughs> a little than bit, Sonic yeah. Spinball. A little yeah. bit. You know, I know Sonic Spinball back in the day got better marks than Mario Pinball Land did. I remember people quite excited about this and thought, you know, this is really great. But now if you try to play it, it's, it's kind of slow. You know? It's slow. It's you know, a big thing about video pinball is you have to feel like you're in control. Mm. And I don't think either game achieved it, but of the two, I think Mario Pinball Land did it better. But Mario Pinball Land was, like, unnecessarily difficult. Well, let's keep in mind that Mario Pinball Land also tried to incorporate role-playing game elements, too. So it was quite a different style game. 
Right. I mean, it wasn't trying to... Sonic Spinball was trying to replicate or simulate a pinball table in the same canon of the Sonic universe. Mm-hmm. And Mario took more of an approach, like, we'll take the elements of pinball and dump it into Mario Land, if that makes sense. Sure. Like, the, Mario Land... Uh, Mario Pinball Land, which I don't think is a very good name, <laughs> did, like dump the elements of the flippers and Mario as the ball, but you were still doing things like hitting coin blocks and attacking bad guys and, you know, stomping, or in this case, rolling over Goombas, whereas Sonic played more like your typical video pinball game, you know, the ones that, like, Sierra would put out, where it was very flat Mm. and uh, linear, uh, where the Mario Pinball Land went for more of that three-dimensional approach to the play field. Gotcha. You and I also talked offline about Kirby Pinball Land. Sure. And Kirby Pinball Land and Pokemon Pinball mm. are two examples of two pretty good pinball games for the original Game Boy. I mean, now they're kind of dated, but they were a lot of fun, and they were your standard video pinball. It was trying to simulate a pinball table on your screen. It was a lot of fun. But anyway, I just wanted to ask the council of uh, any others they remember, if they remember any fond memories of the ones I just discussed, or their feelings on them. My favorite thing about Sonic Spinball, it plays okay, and I like throwing it on every now and again. But, you know, there's one area where when you fall past the flippers, mm-hmm. and like there's a, where you fall into a, a barrel. Yes. And Sonic starts to row with a little <laughs> oar or something. I love that, and I'll play that game just to see him row, you know, going along in his little oar. But, um,. The, I, the game itself is um, it's grand, but it's just the thing I liked about the Sonic games and what everyone liked was the speed of the game, you know. And uh, you know, pinball very fast pastime, and you think video pump pinball with Sonic the Hedgehog, this is going to be super fast. Yeah, but it wasn't. The no. last processors are <laughs> yeah. turned off for this game. <laughs> yeah. It was a blast-free zone. <laughs> uh, but you know, it did have some little elements of charm to it. Sure. But on top of that. I don't know what the hell I'm supposed to do in that game. You know? Yeah, the targets were sort of ambiguous. I gotta be honest when I when I was a kid playing it on the cartridge, I didn't know there was more than one table in that game. Ah, okay. You I never only made played it. that first table, that toxic zone or toxic uh, cave or something like this. Right, right. So I remember playing it consistently and always playing that table. I'm like, you know, this kind of sucks. There's only one table. It wasn't until I played it recently I realized there's actually four tables in there, and they're all pretty much average you know for yeah. what it is it's yeah. just it's not it's not terrible it's not abysmal by any stretch of the imagination but it's not good either yeah i mean it doesn't compare to some of the top tier video pinball franchises out there but then again this was an action platformer franchise being dumped into video pinball so maybe sure. that had something to do with it and we'll probably touch on uh, mary pinball land in a little while in fact let's go right into it uh this is going to be kind of an abridged gaming happy fun time version of all available video pinball games because if you don't know one of my favorite genres of video games is video pinball and to me there's three types of video pinball games there's the emulation style where you're trying to emulate the look and feel of a real pinball machine you can normally change the views a little bit maybe it even has top class reflections might even have tableware things like that but it maintains not only the physics of a regular pinball machine but also what you can do with a regular pinball machine and what you can't do with a regular pinball machine is is left out of here and then there's the enhanced emulation that's where they will take 
something that looks like a regular pinball table, has all the physics of a regular pinball table, but then it might have some little animated elements thrown in, blown in on top of it, where like a dragon comes to life or disco lights go over top of it. You know, some some right. type of weird thing in hand simulation. And then there's the full-on video game pinball machines as well. And I like each type of those video pinball games. I think there's good examples of them throughout the history of trying to capture pinball on a video game, which is which is kind of so weird because at the time that video games started going into arcades and, and pushing the pins out, there was a lot of friction there between pinball players and video game players. So it, it's kind of neat... Uh, a lot of people along the way, though, embraced both of them, and, and that's definitely where I am. There are plenty of arcade video pins, some very adult-oriented, as uh, John d- touched on with uh, with his... Um, it was a sex a, quiz. A sex quiz. <laughs> his quiz game. But there's a lot of... Uh, I think probably half of the arcade video pins are probably adult-oriented, but... Truly, none of them are very memorable. And one early, <laughs> yeah, one very early video pin for the home market that I can still play despite its simplicity. And I mentioned this to Nolan Bushnell, and I talk about it whenever I can. Is the Atari Video Pinball Model C three eighty? It's a standalone. Yes. It has uh, two side flipper buttons. I'm looking over at it. You have a start button that also, I believe, uh, launches the ball. And then you have a knob as well. So it can play like breakout-style game. It can play like a weird Pong as well, But it, it and some of the different modes. And this, of course, attaches right to your RF connection in the back of your television. And the sound comes out of the unit, like many of the old Pongs and standalone systems would. But this game is just, I don't know what about it, but it's just so much fun. The flippers are just on-off, as far as I can tell. But there's just something about the simplicity of this and actually having a unit where you have both sides and you're flipping. You know, they're acting like flippers. And that really, really makes a difference. So even though it's this very simple display, the ball physics are kind of wacky, random pong type of things. The fact that you're able to take this unit and put your hands on both sides of it and flip around makes this video pinball really something uh, special to to play. just wanted to know was the... um the ball avatar whatever is it a square or is it like the best simulation of a round object using multiple squares no it's not like the nes pinball it's it's just one pixel uh, uh in in size so it is it is quite square it's just like a pong just like the pong blip actually so oh, cool. uh, you know it doesn't matter it, it's just having that extra gimmick that breaks out uh, that's it's what the game kinetics it. it's and, actually physically touching those flippers and hitting them yeah the sa- you know the same thing for uh, I, I talk about it quite often uh stunt cycle the same way for the atari tank or even the coleco tank coleco had a two player tank game and just because you could do the dual sticks you can go back and play these games now because of that that interaction. That's why when people immediately were crapping on the Wiimote and stuff like that, I knew that, well, if they use it right, um, yeah. it, it really can make the difference, despite graphic power and, and things like that. I mean, that's why I'm enjoying Zen Pinball, but I guess we'll get back to that later. But it was Right, we're it, not quite there yet. Okay, let's get, we'll get there. 
Now, you can also do emulators, as was begun by things like Pin Mame on your, on your computer, and now with the quite stunning visual pinball. But those are just to sort of relive nostalgically the physical real pins that you once may have played in the past and you wanted to try to remember it they're not fully fleshed out it's not like actually playing the real machine but it's as close that you can to get to playing those actual physical machines with these type of emulators but i don't really want to go into that and of course we could talk about things like pinballs on the in television on a 2600 but i don't i don't really think those are necessarily worth uh, talking about let's let's go right to the nes i think the nes is where we got our first taste of a lot of really neat fun playable pinball games of course many people bring up the original pinball which hey my lovable loser a couple episodes back i talked about it i love that game it stinks yeah, it does. It's a turd, but I love it. Penguins and eggs and Mario. And then yeah. you get to that. Why not? That Pauline's one, in there, too. Yeah, Pauline. You get to that bonus level where Mario's actually like a breakout, holding a breakout board above his head. It's called Alleyway. It's gotcha. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> hey, I, I got it as soon as it came to the virtual arcade in, in the Wii as well. But then I played it a little while. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I completely <laughs> remember this. Yeah. But as I talked about with Steve Ritchie, uh, we also had like high-speed Pinbot, a lot of these remakes of the Williams arcade tables. But these were enhanced emulation. They were trying to capture the real physical boards. But then, uh, well, one weird thing about the Williams arcade pinball machines that you'll, you'll notice right away on the NES is that your flippers and the entire lower half of your board where the plunger is, your flippers are, that whole section stays static on your television screen. And then when you kick the ball up and it goes out of the range of where your bottom flippers are, the top part of the screen will scroll up using regular scrolling while you can still see where your flippers are down below because that part of the screen stays still. So it's like sort of split screen with the, the ball continuing on. But then like in games like High Speed, you'll have things that come out and capture the ball. They destroy the ball and stuff like that. So it, it's sort of that enhanced emulation. Other things go on, and you have bonus levels as well. So that was kind of cool. And I always enjoyed those. I don't know how much I can play them now. But one of the most unique games, I think, for the NES was, of course, Jellico's Pinball Quest. You oh, were, yes. You were given, like, three standard tables that were, meh, okay. You know, they were kind of mediocre. And talk about having your flippers fly all around. That's what happened in this game as well. But then you also had an RPG where you had to shoot for targets, shoot for ramps, and then destroy enemies that were quite RPG-ish skeletons and whatnot and monsters and things like this. And you had to perform different tasks and there was a little bit of a storyline that moved you along. That was, that was, it kind of had pinball puns. It was laden with pinball puns. So that was kind of neat. Any other NES games that anyone remembers? As far as pinball, no. I had, oh yeah, Rock and Ball. That was another one. I'm trying to think of all the ones that I had. Rock and Ball. I liked Rock and Ball. I think that was pretty good. I don't remember a lot about it right now offhand. Let's move on to then the, the Genesis, and I'm going to save the best for last. So if I skip a system, then you might know you you might know what, of course, the best is to me. But for the Genesis, we had Dino Land, which kind of stunk uh, as well. I mean, it it was good. It has it has a lot of play fields. Now this was purely full on video gaming pinball here because it was just all set in 
a lush green environment with many dinosaurs all around and different things happen to your ball and you, you went all over the place uh, with different dinosaurs grabbing your balls. Now you might think that sounds interesting, but it did play a little slow as well. And we talked about Sonic Spinball. I, I'm surprised that John didn't bring up crew ball because I would thought Oh, oh he wants to. <laughs> I was talking about it offline. Bring it up. Let's talk about it. A uh, crew ball is cool. I mean, it was actually it was obviously uh, seemed to me to be developed and then brought to some record label, you know, independent of the music or whatever. I like the Tommy Lee mode where you got the big flipper. <laughs> <laughs> Good, crazy. Well, uh, oh, yeah, moving on. Yes. Pinball. crew ball. Now, if you didn't know, I mean, it's Motley Crew. It's not C R E W. It's that C R umlaut E or whatever. So it had the music of Motley Crue. I, I got to say, as far as bringing Motley Crue to a video game, it did much better than Journey did on the Atari. <laughs> oh, definitely. So uh, you got that. But uh, for some reason, it, it has a real cult following. A lot of people like it. It's not a bad pinball game. It Some of the repetitive backgrounds are kind of lost to me. I, I don't really care for it. Uh, and I also don't like the ball animation, and I'm a big one for that. Now, this is, this is uh, I don't know if we would call this enhanced simulation. It's between enhanced simulation and full-on video gaming pinball because it, it definitely, uh, I think it has a pretty big table, and you have the bonus games and things like that. What Majority you- of the gameplay, though, was just regular pinball. There wasn't really anything special about the tables that like would have attached themselves to like Motley Crue or whatever. Yeah, it's sort of a weird one, but for some reason, uh, people still go after that title. And of course, for the Mega Drive, and I'm not sure if it came out in, in Europe or not for PAL, Devil's Crash MD came out, and we'll talk about the original Devil's <laughs> Crash and Devil's Crush later. I just blew it, but Devil's I Crash... I was just going to say, I it did come out for the for the Mega Drive, and I had to talk about it now because it's it's a Mega Drive game, and uh, the 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 table's a little skinnier than previous incarnations of this game, and some of the bonus levels are different, but the majority of the game is pretty much the same, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. Technosoft brought that to the uh, to the Mega Drive, not available in the states. Devil's Crash ND, you're talking about? Yep. Mm-hmm. Was that like Doctor Devil's Crash then? Mega Drive. <laughs> I didn't get that right away. It is a medical doctor. No. Mega Drive. I'm going to edit that joke out. I don't like that joke. <laughs> that was a good joke. Any other memorable games? I know there were there were more games for the Genesis uh, that were pinball related, but I think there were more like pinball construction kit, those type of things, the pro pinball, the thing that you got ported to every system, fantasies and dreams and things like this. But those were the only notable ones I can recall. Let's move on to Super Nintendo. You had the sequel to all those devil ones. We might as well get those out of the way. And probably one of the best, I think the only really good pinball game for the Super Nintendo was Jackie Crush. And it wasn't really that good. And that was uh, Japanese as well. You had a skinny play field. You had Wii Wii Flippers. There were many of them, but they were, they were kind of tiny. And I'm always... I like my flippers a little bit longer in length than, than these uh, tiny wee-wee ones that are in Jackie Crush. But it did have the cool Mode 7 effects of some of the ghosts and things like that, monster-related items. So if you if you want any pinball on the Super Nintendo, you might want to go for Jackie Crush. That sounds cool. I like the idea of Mode 7 pinball, but pass me by. I didn't even own a Super Nintendo one of her hot. 
Gotcha. We also had the fantasies, pinball fantasies. We had the, the pro pinball line and things like that. I, I can't really recommend them too much on a Super Nintendo. I guess they're great, but, you know, they came out for everything. I was kind of tired of them. And one game that I was really, really looking for, forward to, and this only came out for the Super Famicom as well, was SD Pinball. And I talked about this in the past, but it, it's all the super deformed Ultraman and Kamen Rider and things right. like this, and I, I could not wait to get my hands on this, because some of those Bandai titles with the super deformed characters, I like the Quest ones and stuff like that, but the pinball game, it, it really plays slow as well, and not a lot going on. If you want to get anything in the action-related SD line, I suggest getting the SD uh, Dodgeball. Moving on to the more powerful systems, and then we'll, we'll hit the uh, handhelds at the end. Let's move on to the Saturn. The Saturn actually had some great pinball video games released for it. But the problem is they were almost all released for Japan audiences only. And you know what? There might have been some PAL versions of these as well. But Pinball Graffiti for Japan was not one of the good ones. If you see this, you might want to pass on that. Although it did have the ball view, which was kind of you know fun to, to, uh, to see yourself going around as the ball. You're sort of in just floating in this void in this black background so you see this 3d rendered table with this huge black background environment so it's kind of depressing and like <laughs> i said it's it's not really anything to look at or write home about it's okay but i will tell it's you like playing pinball on the moon is it it's not like lunar pinball which doesn't exist but i want it to now but yes it's sort of like playing pinball in outer space with nothing around you it's pinball in a vacuum one game that I will really, really recommend, and if you're a fan of sexy anime, if you're a fan of Poppin' Twin Bee, if you're a fan of Parodius... And let's face it, who isn't? Oh, man. You might be getting a little old in the tooth by now, but <laughs> but for a pinball machine, and especially for the Saturn, it's great. You will love fantastic pinball. It's all hand-drawn. This is a pure, full-on video game pinball type of game. And like I said, you have the sexy anime girls. I think they have like just pasties on and stuff, but it's sort of has an occult overtone, like, you know, cute witches and cute hell and things like that. Uh, so it's really, really neat. It has a lot of bonus levels. The only thing, it has that cheap ball animation. So instead of putting a highlight on a ball and making the highlight sort of move naturally, they just flip the ball around real quick. So you have the shine of the ball moving all around the ball very unnaturally. It's a very cheap ball animation. I think that's the only uh, thing that's the detractor on that. But everything else is, is really slick. And a game that I also really like, uh, Digital Pinball released a couple titles for the Saturn. And once again, I think these are only available to Japanese audience. I couldn't find my copy of uh, Necronomicon. That is a really neat, it's a stubby little play pinball field, but there's a, a lot of different tables, a lot of different things to achieve. It's very easy to understand what the goal of the tables are. And you can also play Arkham Asylum inside there. No relation. Mm. But that is one of the <laughs> Necronomicon tables. And the Hyper 3D Pinball and the emulation style, they all came out for the Saturn as well. And you might even be able to get some of those pro pinballs and things like that for the Saturn. And they're actually pretty good. Any Saturn pinballs, you guys? Can't say that I have Do you even Saturn own a Saturn? No. How about you, John? I never owned a Saturn. Wow. Because, uh, a guy across the street from me owned one. Okay. And that was the only one I've ever seen. You know, there's, there's just, a lot of really, really 
great 2D style games for this, and even games like Clockwork Knight. Uh, Saturn's a really neat system. If you ever can pick it up on a cheap, and maybe it has a bunch of games bundled into it, there's some real gems on the Saturn, but not a lot of people own it. And I know, even talking about it now, you know, what pinball games should you get for your Saturn? Uh, I know it's kind of a lost audience. You're really paring it down yeah. with the audience. <laughs> but I got to tell you, Saturn has its charm for the giant box that it was. Just as long as you don't need to try to save it to the external memory cards, which had about 721 teeth that had to fit perfectly into the Saturn memory card slot, or else it will wipe all the data on the memory card. A game within itself. <laughs> it had a great mascot, though, to Saturn in Japan. That was the Sega Sanshiro. You should just check him out on YouTube. The ads are awesome. Yeah, yeah, he was kind of crazy. Now let's move on to the PlayStation. Pretty much everyone owned a PlayStation 1, I, I would assume, that listens to our show. I'll tell you one game that the UK got that we never got, and that was Worms Pinball. I have to give that a big thumbs up. Now, that was an emulation-style pinball. It was full-on emulation, but it looked like a real physical table in the pro pinball style that perhaps you know would have been created yeah. that featured Worms. Now, too bad it, it didn't come to the States. Now, I don't know. You probably never played that one, though, John, did you? No, uh, the box looks familiar, but it could have been just because uh, I saw it in the rental places or whatever, you know? Right on, right on. I was never a big... I was never great at Worms. That was my problem. So. Ah, okay. So you wouldn't want to play a pinball of it. <laughs> no. Now, the, the Worms yeah, pinball yeah. Is, is a really neat-looking table. I, I'd love to see that uh, somehow released on the PlayStation Store or something like that. That would be really cool. Austin Powers, you would think this would be great. It actually stunk. So don't pick up Austin Powers for your PlayStation. Shocking. <laughs> the, I've got to tell you one thing, though. And this is... And now... PlayStation, of course, got all the PC ports of, uh, you know, the pro pinball lines, the fantasies, yeah. the the dreams and things like this. And I'm not going to go into those. But what I will go into, and this this was more of an enhanced emulation verging on full-on video game pinball. The best pinball I p played yet on the PlayStation is, believe it or not, Power Rangers Pinball Zeo Full oh, Tilt Battle Pinball. Yes, Power Rangers Zeo is actually a really, really fun pinball game for the PlayStation 1. You want to talk about Pinball 2000 and the return of the invaders there. This has that type of feel because you have the giant monsters walking around trying and that, you, that you're trying to hit with your pinball and stuff like that. So it's, the only thing annoying about it is you got that robot. Beep, Which boop, robot? Beep, boop, whatever, the, whatever oh, happened oh, when they yeah. came to America. The one with the UFO head? Yes. Boop, boop, I can't um, believe it. Deep, deep, boop. Whatever yeah. it used to do. It was a dirty. Yes. I think that was it. Twinkie? I think it was Twinkie. No. Beady, beady, beady. <laughs> Buck. Now, that would be great to have a Buck Buck Rogers uh, pinball uh, emulator type of game. Yeah. Buck Rogers it was a, definitely a, a, a physical pin. All right. What comes next? What happens? Saturn? You got PlayStation? What are we going to next? Are we going to the uh, PS2? Did yeah. the 64 have any pinball games? Well, it did, but it had those pro-line pinballs, which I don't really feel like talking about. So I'm not And even... the 64 sucks, so yes, let's I move hate on. It. Yeah. Although you could have used a thumbstick as some type of analog uh, plunger mechanism, although I don't think it was. Yeah. And I also haven't mentioned PC and Mac pinball. I really want to get into that because if you have an old Mac OS 9 system laying around, there's some really fun pinballs to get into. Why don't I talk about those right now and then we'll go into the PS2, the more powerful systems, because 
I think that the PS2 and the Dreamcast and what came after that will be more powerful than your Mac uh, available pinball machines. One game series, Sierra, you mentioned Sierra before, they had the 3D pinball franchise, and boy, did they have a lot of fun titles. Now, these were more in the full-on video game uh, style of pinball machines, Creep Night and Lost Continent. If Creep Night was more of a haunted house style game, and this was really cool. It had sort of side-by-side play fields that you could get into. A lot of animation going on here to knock down creatures and stuff like that. It was also available for the PC. And Lost Continent. Now there's Dino Land done right, because this was more realistic looking. I don't know if it was around the time of Jurassic Park or whatever, but it was sort of along that more serious line of pinball machines, and that was really neat. But one game that I just played the other day, because I had to make sure that I really did like this, that it really was worth it. And you can get this for your Mac OS 9 or for your PC. And a great thing about it is it's a dual boot disc. So it will work on Mac OS 9 or on a PC. And this is from Sierra as well. NASCAR Pinball. Oh, you like this? Your ball, was it like a car or a ball? It was a ball. It was from the 3D Ultra line from Sierra. And NASCAR Pinball, believe it or not, I mean, now I don't know anything about NASCAR. You can actually be Dale Ed Part. You know, you can be these guys. Bob Eucalypse. That's Uh, him. (laughs) You can't be Hermie Sadler. That's the only thing. Because, you know, it is kind of old. So you can only be those original fellas. And uh, so you could actually be these people. Why you'd want to be them, I don't know. But you could be their actual cars and things like this. So this was kind of neat. But you would start... In the garage, your pinball table would would have like a it would have your car up on jacks, and it would have all these targets around the car. And what you would do is you would hit the different targets to beef up your tires, beef up your suspension, even give you like practice laps and things like this. So that was the first part of it. And you had a time limit to try to get your car in the best condition it could. Then it would switch to the qualifying lap. And while you're in the qualifying lap, you try to hit the different turn targets and things like this. And little cars would be going around in the background of your play field. So it was kind of neat. You you could see the cars go by. You could see the tower. And then you had your points. And the better you did on the qualifying lap by trying to hit the different turn targets in order... That would place you in a better starting position once the the regular game started. When the regular game started, you would try to hit the turns in in order. Sometimes there would be an accident. You tried to take one of the... There's four turns that you could take all together. You you had to try to, uh, you know, avoid the accident. If you didn't avoid the accident in time, then you had to go to the pit stop. And there was a little pit stop target that you tried to get into. And then that would take you in a whole other little side game uh, of a pit stop. And you're trying to hit your tires in the right order and do all this other things to get out of the pit quicker cool. and there was even a back wall which had a little play field as well and when you knock down all the targets in the back wall you would actually break the back wall and as the cars would come by as they went around for their lap you could shoot your ball at the cars that were coming by and make them like crash so that That's they had, awesome. yeah so they had to go to like to the pit stop and you would get ahead in mm-hmm. in this thing, you know, and there's all different really neat things, and and like I said, you could probably find this on eBay or something like that. NASCAR Pinball by Sierra. Once again, it won't work in OS 10, but um, if you have an OS 9 system or you're able to do that or able to play it on a PC, it doesn't need big requirements. Uh, let's see what year was this from. 1998. So, yeah, you know, you you don't really need a big, hefty system to play that. Now, one game I will steer you away from if you're searching for these older pinball machines for your uh, PCs and Macs. Sci-Fi Pinball. Hey, 
here you go. You can play Aliens, an Alien Table, a Predator Table, The Fly, and even Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Can I have the Alien versus the Buffy versus the Predator and the Fly table? I don't think that would even save this, because unfortunately, (laughs) this was released by Fox Interactive. So So they're licensed then. They are licensed, uh, but it was produced by Fox Interactive. I don't know if you heard that part. I don't know if you ever played any Fox Interactive games in the past. <laughs> Can you download a, like a, you know like a, an expansion pack where you get to play the Battlefield Earth table? That's what I want to know. <laughs> you got to save the sea turtles. Only that can make it uh, better. But the the problem with this is is that because it's designed for your computer screen, instead of doing any extra work, they made it like a regular shape of a pinball machine. But you're looking at it right from the top down, and then the whole right-hand side of the screen is taken up by some graphics that say Buffy or Aliens or something like that. So it's it's like <laughs> it's not even a half screen of pinball that you're playing, and it just feels it feels like you're playing something from the 8-bit era, although it came out near the year, year 2000. So unfortunately, it loses big time. And you know, there's dozens and dozens and dozens of pinball tables, Star Trek pinball, and um, sexy pinball girl and all these other types of things. But those are the ones that are uh, recommendable. And one that I did recommend to Steve Ritchie and I recommend to everyone out there is Big Race USA. Now, you will be able to get, and this was brought out by Empire to the computers. This is in the pro pinball line. And you will be able to play Big Race on your Dreamcast and on your PlayStation. But I don't recommend that you get it from there because there's something about the way that it displays on the Mac and PC, the view of the table that is better than those other console versions. But Big Race USA, it's in the emulation line of pinballs. The board has a great feel, and the dot matrix actually works. It really makes sense in the game. It means something. So I would really go for that Big Race USA. It's this uh, really neat, catchy jazz music, not A-hole jazz, that really moves the, the boards along. And it's a gorgeous, gorgeous play. So I re- recommend Big Race USA. I played that. That was a lot of fun. Yes. Moving on to the Dreamcast, you got your Pro Pinball Trilogy, which has the aforementioned Big Race. But it also has Fantastic Journey and Time Shock. And it actually looks pretty good on here. I, I don't really have a problem with it. Uh, also, Neo Golden Logris came out, which is kind of an odd title. That's a neat game uh, as well. Both of those titles are more in the emulation line. Uh, and I really don't know of any other Dreamcast pinball games. I'm still waiting for Power Stone pinball. That would be awesome. Yeah, it would be so I think rad. any Capcom pinball would probably be neat. And I don't mean Capcom licensed ones like, yeah, we, like we have. We'll get in, to that later. Yeah, like in our Zen. So for that, I, I you know Dreamcast, rest in peace. But pinball, mm. you figure there'd be a lot of pinball those games, right? Because those triggers right on the controller. Yeah, I mean that's so tactile. But there, no. there, there might be, but I do recommend a, the Pro Pinball Trilogy. I think that's that's a great buy. You might be able to find that uh, out there for it as well, and it's done well. PS2. Uh, I think the best one to recommend here is the Flipnik. Very, mm. very interactive PS2. A lot of very surreal non <laughs> you can't do this in real pinball surroundings this is a full-on video game pinball but it's done it's a full-on video game pinball but it's done in such a uh, a realistic way that it just looks like surreal pinball i mean i would love to see a ps3 version of this that it would make you forget all about zen I don't, I don't really know how to describe this. In fact, it might even do too much because 
there's so many tables. There's so many places where the ball gets followed around as the camera zooms around. You're in all these different environments. UFOs happen, and they look quite real. And then you go from these lush jungle-style backgrounds to weird res-looking, like uh, out-of-the-game res like backgrounds mm. like that. So it's it's really neat. Check out Flipnik Sounds if cool. you can for the PS2. Uh, definitely worth it. Then, of course, once we're into the, this PS2 era, we get all the Gottlieb Hall of Fame, the Williams Hall of Fames, all the things that we see on the Wii and for other systems. Those all start coming out around that time, which are great compilations. Those are just trying to be emulations of the real physical tables, but they give you different goals for each table, and you can unlock some of the... Um, and you get to play Black Knight and all, all the tables. You can that get Steve those for get. like half a ham sandwich. Too. Oh, yeah. Cheap now. They should be all under $15. Those are really neat little uh, emulation type of things, but they're not going to give you the, the bang that Flipnik does, the real video game only experience that you get. I got to check that out because I haven't played that. Another good one that we didn't get in the States was Akira Psycho Pinball. This is an enhanced emulation and it is based on the anime Akira. Mm. So it's really neat. It has a lot of neat things going on. Is there a giant blob in the middle of the field? Please tell me yes. Uh, I, you know, I haven't played it enough <laughs> oh. to to know about that. I, I just remember, I haven't played this in a long time. I remember the tables sort of are split into different pieces, and they come together like big machine parts. Oh, so I cool. thought that was kind of neat. And I remember seeing, some, I remember seeing the main character in there. And I don't really know what I, I might be getting it confused with Ghost in the Machine Pinball, which never came out and wasn't never real or even thought about. So uh, I so I might be getting those mixed up. Uh, let's talk about the handhelds right now, and then we'll get into the other things. We sort of ran down them real quickly with Jaden. Not much to talk about as far as the iPhone or the iPod are concerned. Not not really a, a lot to choose from, although there are, is a lot to choose from. But as you mentioned for the Game Boy, Kirby Pinball Land, very, very good pinball game. And that was for the original Game Boy, so it's going to be in your four shades of gray. But so many neat things happen with there. You get to ride on stars. You get to I would call that an enhanced emulation because even though it's top down, it's trying to have all the regular pinball physics. There are certain things that Kirby does that are very can't do with any other pinball. And right. the really neat thing about it is one recurring theme in real pinball tables, and we even saw this on the original pinball for the NES, is the gambling card slot machine. Yes. That theme. So those those themed pinball games usually did pretty well. Uh, I think that's a cultural thing, though, because a lot of the, the pachinko machines have mm. a slot machine element to them. Right, I could be right. completely wrong, but I mean, I, that's why... No, I you're right. The Pokemon game, I think, had that as well. Yep, it had a jackpot. The way it worked, you see, with pachinko back in the day, well... Uh, you could like it was, Pachinko became huge in Japan after the Second World War, and uh, this is back when the country was devastated economically. Mm-hmm. So you could win actually, you could win extra food for the week, right. more you know than your rations and Pachinko machines and stuff. Gotcha, gotcha. But even uh, Steve Ritchie, I don't know if you mentioned it, but he he sort of really disliked his uh, his Texas Hold'em themed pinball game. But to me. That is a classic theme. You had 8-Ball, which was pool-based, Royal Flush, and things like this. A lot of physical tables that had gambling or card-based themes. I think that's sort of like a, a pinball tradition. So it's neat that we see the, the slot machines and the, and the different cards come up and things like this in the Kirby pinball. Uh, then the Lynx came out, and we had uh, Elvira. It was Elvira and 
some police game. I can't remember the the other table that was part of the Elvira cartridge. Now, I was hot for this title. I couldn't wait to be able to play this. And fortunately, because of the link screen, it's a very blurry ball mess, and it's hard to see. It's great table layout and stuff like that, but it's very hard to see. Uh, Game Gear... Is that a port of the Elvira pinball, like physical pinball? I'm not sure. I don't think it was. It definitely is pure emulation. It's trying to just be a real pinball machine, but I'm not sure if those were ports. I don't know. Uh, Game Gear, not much here. Maybe Spinball came Spinball was that. on there. Hey, yeah. going back to Spinball real quick. Yeah. You know, one of my favorite boards in the Sonic games were those Casino Night boards. Uh-huh. And yeah. I think that's why Spinball was such a disappointment to me, because those boards were so much like going back to the slot machine yeah. and the pinball feel. Like, that's what that board was. So when Spinball was as slow as it was, that I think that that's really why it was such a disappointment is because in our minds we already knew what a sonic pinball game should be right and spinball was not that <laughs> gotcha gotcha hey and you know speaking of uh, slot machines and that theme moving along in different sega games in unexpected places and speaking of nascar pinball we even had in rolling start sega daytona usa yeah remember you, you drove your your stock car underneath that that thing and it a jack machine jackpot machine would go off all right that's not pinball all right moving on links okay game gear okay uh game boy color then we had the pokemon we talked about this a little bit not so good not so good should have uh, been a lot tables. better it was average should have been a lot better some I, of the modes were cool i guess there's only really one mode it was catch a mode but yeah you're right it was an average I pokemon think game. if they would the rumble just, made it though yeah rumble that's, was cool. that's why we had the that blister pack i think if they would just would have revamped Kirby pinball and how fun that was and just put some Pokemans in them, made them hatch. Maybe that would have, that would have been, that would, I think where we really get into some really cool pinball handheld specific ones. And I'm not talking about the PSP because you have all the, the pro pinballs and the things like that. And the got leaves and everything on that one. Uh, the hall of fames, the Game Boy Advanced had some very unique games, and like we mentioned, Mario Pinball Land, and it had a lot of stinkers as well. But where it was really good, one of the, one of my favorite ones, one that Chiz still plays to this day in her DS, is Pinball of the Dead. Oh, which has a lot of different tables, and of course is based around House of the Dead by yes. Sega. So, yeah, yeah. Okay. so it's a, it's a really solid game. Any other handhelds that you remember? Metroid Prime one wasn't there? Ah, was, oh, yeah, that was very good too. So that, like that was Metroid for the Prime. Was again for, with the Rumble. You had the, the Rumble in that too for the DS. Yeah, and it came with a yeah. Rumble pack. Yeah, Metroid Prime Pinball. If you just play it once, you're probably not going to like it. Play it a couple times, really start to understand it. Try to see what the mission is. Try to. My old man the, loves that game. It looks he, great, and I don't think there's any other DS pinballs really worth talking about outside of that one. Yeah. There were a couple real stinkers, and I've talked about them in past reviews. Uh, some that were based on like little animals and stuff like that. Just yeah, it's really easy terrible. to make a bad pinball game. It is. It is. Did you ever play Marvel Ultimate Lines? Actually, there's a great level on that where you're in like arcades murder world, mm-hmm. and he makes you run through a giant pinball table. But what's awesome is you grab your enemies and you can fire them into the flippers and stuff, and then oh, that's bounce cool. off them. Okay, very good. I'm still waiting for somebody to make a pinball game in Trials HD with all the elements there. You know, uh, it has the flippers, it has the bumpers and stuff, but I have yet to see it. Gotcha. Well, we, we did see that happen on uh, Little Big Planet. People have made pinball machines. So that's kind of cool. Moving on to the GameCube. Did the GameCube fit into any of these places? That, that came out after, right? 
So we're all good. I think we're in a, in a good timeline. The only one that, to me, is worth talking about is, of course, the weirdo Odama. O-D-A-M-A. You can probably still get this. You're thinking, why is this coming in a giant box? Well, because it has a microphone. So let's marry feudal Japanese war battles with a that, of course, you play with a pinball flippers. And then you can tell your troops to go hither or yonder or attack or or defend or whatever with the microphone that clips onto your <laughs> clips onto your GameCube controller. Weird. Yeah, it is weird. <laughs> it's sort of like Seaman meets uh, pinball meets. I don't want Seaman to meet pinball. <laughs> meets feudal Japanese. Uh, I want Seaman far away from anything I play. It's tower defense that you talk into. And it's a pinball, and you're trying to carry your giant bell around, and it's just kind of weird. I know I haven't really played a lot of the Xbox pinball machines. I know that you had the Ultimate Pro Pinball, so it had like a compilation of all the Pro Pinball previous games. You also had the Gottlieb collections and stuff like that. But one that might be worth mentioning is Pure Pinball. Uh, You might want to check that out. Once again, this is a pure emulation-style table. Give it a look, but I, I really don't have a lot of pinball games for the original xbox moving on to the playstation 3 and the xbox 360 and even the wii i'm really surprised that this environment really didn't lend itself to having more of these pinball emulations available because i think downloadable is the way to go on these these type of things and having a a a skinnable table a skinnable engine is really another way to go i'm really surprised that zen has a monopoly on this now zen is on both the 360 and on the playstation 3 it's of course known as pinball effects on the 360 and there's a couple neat tables you know those tables offhand yeah uh the game itself when you download it comes with three tables yeah you get Speed Machine, which is like a car-themed table. Right, yeah, that's pretty um, cool. Extreme, which is a skateboarding-themed table. Of course, it's called Extreme. <laughs> yep. And uh, Agents, which uh, is a secret agent-themed table. Right, right. Zen Pinball, you get four tables yeah. on the PlayStation. One of them is worth the entire thing. Tesla. Yes! Tesla's a blast. Tesla. Uh, you get Tesla... You get El Dorado, which is a like Indiana Jones type theme mm-hmm. game. You get sh- Shaman or Shaman, yep, whatever shaman. your flavor is, and that's kind of like your kooky witch doctor type of feel to it. Very cartoony looking, very bright and uh, colorful. And um, what's the other one? V twelve, which is your car themed one. Right, right. I enjoy all those tables, but of the four, I'd have to say Tesla is my favorite of the four original. And then there's two downloads that you can get for Zen Pinball. The Ninja Gaiden table mm-hmm. and the Street Fighter Two table or Tribute table, and uh, of those two, I'd say Ninja Gaiden is worth the download. And Street Fighter is okay, and it, it doesn't sting too much because it's only like three dollars right. for a download for these tables, and it's ten dollars for the game. Yep. But uh, Street Fighter wasn't as good as I was expecting. Yeah, I think all the tables on Zen are kind of quick, except except for that Ninja Gaiden. I think they really did a great job. And then Ninja Gaiden is the only one that's uh, an enhanced emulation. The other ones are all just trying to be emulations of real pinball machines. Yes. Um, the Ninja Gaiden has some enhanced emulation where they care. I spoke about it a little bit on the last shows where they where the your main character actually moves around and is animated and slices your ball in half. The Street Fighter downloadable is available both for the Xbox and for the PlayStation Three. 
And on the it's a ex- very basic table. Yes, but it, it does have a lot of the old and a lot of the new uh, Street Fighter uh, blown in it. So I kind of I kind of think that's neat. Yeah, and now unfortunately for the PlayStation owners, Xbox has a lot more of the downloadable tables than Zen Pinball. Xbox right also has the Bullwinkle, Rocky. They have the Rocky and Bullwinkle. They have um, Excalibur, Earth Defense, and Buccaneer. So. Right, right, yeah, Buccaneer. What I like about this the Zen Pinball thing is. The little ticker on the bottom that tells you how well your friends did on certain tables and yep. who's the has the top score in this. There's something about it, just very cool, and I enjoy that. I also enjoy that you can like shake your uh, remote with the PlayStation Three to give the table a tilt, mm-hmm. give it a little bit of English, move sure, it around sure. a little bit, and the vibration and control it, it gives me that tactile feel that I want from a video pinball game. I really like Zen. I'm, I'm having a blast playing it. Like I said, Street Fighter, not so hot on, but the rest of the tables I enjoy. tend to find the tables will be a little fast, uh, a little cheap sometimes, but overall, it's a game I do go back to, that's for sure. The idea of playing the Nikola Tesla table definitely appeals to me. Ten bucks, get it. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of neat. You know, I mean, it. it's not really like going and meeting Nikola Tesla, uh, but, but <laughs> it, you know, it's. I mean, when I when I first saw it, I was like, oh, I, I obviously have to get this i have to download this title uh now does uh, david bowie play nikola tesla really badly in it at all no he does in the movie prestige and uh fortunately no no (laughs) but there is a lot of lightning going on there is uh, a lot of things i like break out i like his voice acting yeah tesla (laughs) yeah tesla (laughs) the fuses are in place right it's kind of like dracula yes (laughs) While we're just talking about Zen, Zen does make a iPhone game, and it's called Zen Roller Coaster, I believe. Zen Pinball Roller Coaster. And at first, when you download this thing, you think, oh, it's very flat. I, I can't believe uh, that they did like a hand-drawn art pinball game, and it's not too good. But then you click towards the middle of the screen, and you can unlock the screen and put it in free mode. And what happens is you're looking down at your iPhone your, or your iPod and you're, and you're actually tilting this entire pinball play field using the, the motion accelerometer. sensor. Accelerometer? Yeah, using the accelerometer. Nice. So uh, it's actually really a 3D pinball table. And all of a sudden, I felt a lot better about the game. And I locked it at an angle where it felt more like a pinball machine to me. You don't want to really play in unlocked mode because then you're like tilting this thing all over the place and you're thinking, oh, I can tilt the ball, but you can't. The ball stays on the, the regular physics. It's just your view is tilting of this. So I locked the table at a, at a better angle and, and actually not a, not too bad of a table. I'd wait for it to go on sale for $2. I think it's around $5 right now, but that is, uh, I think Zen made uh, two different apps for the uh, iPod. One thing that I was really looking forward to is the Gottlieb collections, is the Hall of Fames, um, and I was really looking forward to Gottlieb's and the Bally's to come out on the Wii, because I thought the Wii is going to give us the Wiimote, and we're actually going to be able, and not just the Wiimote, but the Wiimote with the nunchuck, and we're actually going to be able to shake these machines with the, the different input, and it should have enough power to make it look nice, and once again, these Hall of Fame games are pure emulation style. 
they're definitely worth it for the Wii because of how inexpensive they are, and to relive some of these titles that Steve Ritchie was involved with, that a lot of the uh, the classics, uh, Gorgar is emulated in these, um, things like that. So it's kind of neat, and it does work with the Wii, but it's really not the immersive feel that I thought it was going to be. Holding the nunchuck and the Wii mote in my hands and, and playing that way brings to mind what leads us into the best pinball game, the big granddaddy all, save the best for last, I think. Now, it doesn't bring to mind the best video pinball game for the system, but it does bring to mind the system I'm going to talk about last, the Turbo Graphics and the <laughs> PC Engine, my favorite system, which does have the best video game pinball on it. But there was a game that came out, and believe it or not, Turbo Technologies did bring this game to the United States. This was Time Cruise. Now, Time Cruise is not a very good pinball game, and I talked a little bit about it with Jaden. There are a lot of different tables side by side on top of one another that you can try to get to into the different areas. And each area has a different goal for you to reach a mini game. And the mini games are where you're taking the time cruise. You're, you're putting your ball in a time machine and you're taking it to the past. Like the one part, you're on a, sort of a, 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 a tilt. What do you call these games where you have a ball and then you like tilt it so that it falls off the paddle it's sort of like a, a controllable pachinko game where you're trying to guide your ball down, but this might be take place in the Stone Age, and then one might take place in the future, and then you're actually playing a labyrinth-style game in one of the parts. Okay. So that's what all the little mini games are. So those are kind of cool. It's just the main play field that gets a little bit repetitive. But the really, really neat thing about this, and they even brought it out in the American version by Turbo Technologies, although they don't tell you how to do this, is the three-controller operation mode. And what it did was allowed you to use your TurboTap and three controller pads. Now, I own the Japanese version of it, so I know how you're supposed to arrange these pads. But in the, in the American version, they just tell you that you could play it with three pads. But what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to take three turbo pads and tape them to like a cardboard box. And you tape you tape the one on the one right side of the box, one on the left side of the box, and then your plunger is supposed to be in the front of the box. And then you actually play it like a real pinball table on a box. Yes. So that brings us full circle to the Atari pinball field and that tactile <laughs> feel and what I thought I was going to get from my Wiimote nunchuck, which I didn't get. But that's the one neat thing and the only reason really to own Time Cruise is to try to set up your gimmick as a real pinball machine. Now, the other two pinball games that came out for the TurboGrafx are, without a doubt, the ones that I play most often. Alien Crush, which we also got a WiiWare version brought in the 3D mode, Alien Crush How Returns. How was it? Alien Crush Returns, you know, it's okay. The more I played it, the more I liked it, but because they tried to push this to 3D, and it seemed like they really didn't put a lot of thought into this, I was kind of disappointed. But the more I played it, and when I actually reached the end of it, I sort of liked it more, and I forgave the 3D. Alien Crush is going to be a really, really neat alien-themed like the movie Alien, Alien-themed video pinball for you. And and this is, once again, full-on video gaming pinball. You have uh, bonus levels where you have to fight different monsters and creatures and, and worms and stuff like this. And it's really neat. And the whole table looks alive. The only problem is it has poor man scrolling. So when you go to the upper part of the play field, it flashes to the upper part. As soon as the ball comes down to the lower play field, it flashes to the lower play field. 
So it has a poor man scrolling in it. And of course, the sequel to this, which was Devil's Crush or Devil's Crash in, in Japan, is my ultimate all-time favorite video game pinball of all time. Favorite of all time. Hence okay, the name. Favorite of favorite of the, favorite of all time. <laughs> the only problem with this game is the the Japanese version is the ultimate version to get because when they brought this to the United States, they had to censor it so that kids wouldn't see a pentagram spinning around. Oh. Can you believe it? I can. <sighs> they did it to Castlevania as well. But th- these are like pinball lights, you know? <laughs> it's yeah. just, it's so silly that they well, had it. The kid it. at the time was to walk into an arcade. Some yeah. of the back glasses from those pinball machines How were about a lot more racier than a pentagram <laughs> spinning oh, around. Oh, yeah. You became a man when you entered into one of these things. Uh, some of these I was arcades. playing Playboy pinball at six. There you go. So basically what we're trying to say is suck it, ESRB. Right, and that ties in with Roger Sharp. So uh, <laughs> so there you go there with the pinball table, with the uh, Playboy yeah. pinball as well. So, yeah, there's just nothing like Devil's Crash. You have got to play it. It's, it's the perfect video game pinball, I think, even still to date. The artwork is gorgeous. The goals are understandable. Oh, I have to try to, to get in on top of this beautiful woman's crown. And then you keep hitting her and you keep getting it in there and all of a sudden she turns into a lizard it's amazing then you, you shoot it oh david ike pinball <laughs> exactly <laughs> boy that really that went over big with the two people that probably got that in our audience <laughs> talk about weeding down two people are listening right now <laughs> right yeah this is gone this has gone far too long but let's just leave it at that the greatest pinball game i think we're all in agreement of all time is devil's crash for the pc engine Agreed? Agreed. Yes. Until next month, Council, thank you for joining me for another thrilling episode of the We Talk Games Council of Video Game Millionaires. Bye now. God bless. See you later. (laughs) See ya. Bye. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Fantastic! Let's get the Sony on the line, get some achievements in, and wrap it up. Call the raps on episode 13. Open the line, Keith. Milwaukee, Wisconsin, Jasonia. Yes, sir. Hello. Hello. Please, bring us the achievements. Now, I know that this is pinball-centric. we got to squeeze this in. We are way over. It's so it's so stacked that we're, we're completely over. It's blown out. Now, I know that we're going to keep this pinball-centric. However, you have one more title for us. We want to find out what the achievement ranking is on Wii Project Runway. Yes, Wii Project Runway. Well, there's Runway and uh, projects involved. And... Uh it's good. Yeah. Very good. Uh, now, of course, I'm joking. We're going to no. talk about Pony Friends 2 for the Wii. Pony. Uh, I thought it was me and my horse, too. I love that game. There's a horse, and it's you. And If you want to talk about a game that needs a sequel, I think it's Pony Friends 1. And I'm so glad that finally the Wii is getting Pony Friends 2. But that all notwithstanding, of course, one of the big, big releases this past month was Bioshock 2. Now, you want to fill us in on Bioshock 1? Should people still be picking this up? What's going on? Well, absolutely. I actually did not play Bioshock 1 until very recently. It was kind of on my pile, and I'm like, hey, Bioshock 2 is coming out. Let's pick up the first one. I, I viewed it from the achievement point of view, as I usually do, and I would say that the first game, even though it's a big title release, and generally I stay away from those, I enjoyed it quite a bit. I thought it was wonderful, and it's it's at a point now where it's been out for long enough, and all this secrets are out so if you went online got yourself a good guide or whatever and played through bioshock one you could get 
all 1,100 achievement points pretty easily and have a real, really good time doing it. I mean, it took me maybe 20 hours to do it, and I, I enjoyed every minute of it. It was a fantastic game. So I would say if you haven't played Bioshock 1 for some reason and you're, you're into achievements, it's certainly worth picking up 40 achievements. All right, let me ask you this. Now, if you go through the game and now you're at the end and you didn't get all the achievements, you have to sort of start from the beginning? Is that how this works? Well, it is a linear story. However, the map design is set up where you can go back and pick up many things you missed. Not everyone, so there are some missable things. But if you miss a few things you can go back and pick them up before the story's over and you could do it in one run through basically i sat down in one playthrough went through the whole thing it was very nice i enjoyed the way that the saves were set up this game gives you i believe they say 50 save slots and you can use them all however i never reached that maximum so it could have been more i wasn't really keeping track but you can save any second in the game so it was nice to be able to say, hey, I know something big's coming up or I haven't saved in a while, I'm going to save now. And if the worst happens, you can go back in time, a minute, five minutes, whatever you need to do. Right. And honestly, how many first-person shooters are okay for people to just watch as you play? I mean, there's not a lot of first-person shooters that people can be entertained to watch you play through the game. So this is one of those uh, rare uh, rarities. I, I agree. And I, I, one of the draws, I think, to this game that separates it is first-person shooters usually are, here's your gun, you go shoot. I mean, this has some interesting twists, like plasmids, which are things you shoot from your other hand, like lightning bolts and fire, that make it kind of more sci-fi, and I think that drew me in a little more, I should say. Right on. So on the second game that I just started playing that, and I maybe can give more of a review in the future, but I wanted to point out that this second one has multiplayer, and I just had to get a good word for it, because even though multiplayer online is a sometimes risky with all the internet nerds that are out there. Uh, I'm having a lot of fun with it, and I would say if you're thinking about buying the second game, the multiplayer alone is probably worth it. It's that much fun. So more review on that possibly in the future, but the achievements for that game look easy as well. So if you are thinking achievement-wise on either Bioshock, I'd say pick it up and you'll have a good time. Right on. So then pinball-centric, the pinball game I was looking at this time is Pinball FX, which is a live arcade title for Xbox 360. I got a chance to play this a little bit. Unlike, I think, every other game I've reviewed here, I've not played this completion, but I feel comfortable enough expressing what the achievements are like. And it seems like a lot of these pinball games, the achievements are pretty tough. And maybe that's the nature of pinball, because, yes, you have your skill and how well you can manipulate the table and, and your flipper reflexes and whatnot. But to then set up an arbitrary set of achievements associated with them, they sometimes don't pick the best stuff. So the achievements for Pinball FX are difficult. I believe this is just speculation and rumor, but I was reading online and not many people have anywhere close to the 250 achievement points. Like it's sometimes difficult to even get 100 points on this game. Gotcha. So it's a fairly standard pinball game for a console. It's I had fun the limited time I was playing it, but achievement-wise, it's going to take you a long time. You have to be really good, and of course there's some luck involved with the how the rolling metal ball falls. So I would say stay away if you're thinking achievements on this, but there aren't many pinball games out there, so you may 
be forced to play us if you're looking for pinball goodness, I guess. Right on, man. So if you want the emulation of the pinball, the pinball emulator, go into the pinball effects. If you're done with Power Slave for the Saturn, you're ready to move on, go for the Bioshock and a Bioshock 2, and you'll get some good achievements out of those. That's exactly what I'd say. One more thing to, to say. Um, people are asking, hey, where were you the last couple of months? Well, yeah. Funny story. At our We Talk Games Christmas party, you know, P.T. Slutkin was there, and I, was, I wanted to get her under the mistletoe, so I went in for a kiss. Next thing you know, I end up in the Sahara, like I turned the frozen donkey wheel from Lost. I have no idea how I got there. Just I've been gone for a few months trying to make my way back, and look at that. Here I am. So note to all the kids out there, P.T. Slutkin is a classy dame. Keep that in mind. She is. She is. Uh, fortunately, she's not here within earshot because Good. if she found out that you got back, uh, yes, who knows? I, I, I've learned my lesson. I, I have to step up my game if I'd like to get a kiss from that wonderful PP. Right on, man. Hey, awesome. you're not the only one. See you now. <laughs> Thanks, pal. Bye. Th- thank you. Bye. I'd like to thank everyone for making this episode possible. Steve Ritchie, Roger Sharp, Kyle Von Kubik, Johnny Capcom, Jaden and Jasonia, of course, in-house TT and Stinky. We Talk Games. And thank you for listening to We Talk Games. We'll see you in Iowa later in this year, and we'll be in your earballs next month on another episode of We Talk Games. Bye now. Yummy. Yeah,